Hello, and welcome to episode one of the Wax and Gold podcast. Wax and Gold. Episode one, Cold Chain, Cold Train. Cold, or the Cold Chain. The cold, maybe just the Cold Chain. The cold Chain. Uh, my name's Archie, the Archerist. And uh, you call me Burko Shemitz. And <laughs> so... Uh, wax and gold. Yeah, wax and gold. I, look, we, we've been we've been talking about how we're. This is our first episode, so you got to give us cut us a little slack. We have been talking about doing this for a while, right? Um, it's emerged out of many different uh, conversations about music, about politics, about conspiracy theories, if that's even an appropriate term for analyzing geopolitical developments in the world and hidden power and machinations right. like that. So but I just have to say, at the top, <laughs> it's an incredible coincidence. Uh, that today, today, as we do this episode, we weren't planning this. We were, we were planning to talk about cold chain and COVID, but today is the day the news broke about uh, intelligence saying that scientists at the Wuhan Institute of Virology were sick with COVID, and the new that news breaking comes at the same time, right before a, a, a new WHO meeting about investigating the origins. So the, so the WHO is, suppo- is supposed to go to the next step of investigating origins. We'll talk more about their last report. Yep. But I just have to say that today, three things about COVID that are pretty big. The wo- this intelligence coming out of the government uh, saying that, that, the, that the Wuhan scientists got sick with COVID in November 2019. The, that it's coming right before the WHO starts to go to their next step of investigating, which basically puts America and American intelligence at odds with the WHO. And third, Dr. Fauci has now said that he does not believe uh, that, it, that the, the virus emerged naturally. So we, basically in the realm of this is all today, today and the uh, lab escape hypothesis and, and, and related things, the block is hot. There is all this new stuff going on, and I'm sure uh, Burko will touch on that. Right. In his portion of the pod, but just uh, because this is the first episode, uh, I'll give the elevator pitch, basically what we're all about. Yes. So the idea is, so, okay, so Burko uh, is basically um, constantly looking at what's happening geopolitically. He's very plugged into all that, constantly thinking about it, constantly doing research, developing theories, seeing patterns, stuff like that. Right. And so... Every episode, he's going to pick uh, some sort of geopolitical topic or theory to expound on. My deal, uh, my name's Archie, again. Um, I'm just a huge music nerd. Uh, basically, just sitting in my room with headphones on, uh, listening to music yes, constantly. And, and you've also introduced me to like some of, the, some of my favorite music that I consider my favorite music bands or albums have come from you over the years yeah like, we, uh, uh, especially brazilian stuff joao donato and marcos valley yeah we i mean we we go we go back uh, go way back about 16 years now um and uh yeah i mean you know i guess the idea was uh you know i, I listen to music a lot i talk talk about it with my friends but you know i i i guess i was thinking like what's the use if i'm just letting all this uh these thoughts and 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 uh and feelings and ideas just bounce around in my head and not let them out into the world. And so 
we decided we would just Press throw yourself. this through this little uh, hybrid convo together yeah. and see how it goes. So, hence wax and gold. Now, another uh, um, brief explanation of wax and gold is I used to be a lecturer in Ethiopia at Addis Ababa University, and uh, wax and gold is a Ethiopian uh, poetic device and um, linguistic device in everyday speech that uses double entendres and puns to express two meanings at once, the obvious meaning and the hidden meaning. Um, and I guess when people ask me if I'm a conspiracy theorist or whatever, yeah. I feel that I feel that that is a what, what did you say weaponized language? It's well, yeah, it's weaponized language. They, you know, if you have, uh, if you've been paying attention to things that are happening, and you have, you see a see a pat, notice a pattern, and you have a theory about it, right. uh, they throw this term conspiracy theorist at right. you to make you seem crazy and to discredit you, but you're sort of. Uh, Stealing it back, right? Is that uh, well, I, I don't think. What's funny to me is, you know, you you asked once uh, if I was offended by this, uh, and I'm not offended anymore because over the last four, especially the Trump years, everyone became a conspiracy theorist. Whether you are a liberal or conservative, whether you're QAnon or you believe in RussiaGate, which I believe both have kernels of truth in them. I believe there's gold in the wax, mm. and it, that it is, you know, just because there is a lot of wax doesn't mean there's not some gold there. And I also believe that, uh, so, so I prefer to use this term wax and gold as a way of describing um, a, a kind of methodology or, or framework for understanding how power functions in the world uh, in, in often very hidden ways. Uh, I think Cornel West said he doesn't believe in conspiracies, he believes in coordinated activity in secret places. Mm -hmm. And Ethiopians are very, not only are they... You know, you could say, oh, yeah, are they paranoid? Are they conspiratorial? Yes, but this is also, they believe, an essential way of surviving um, domination by powerful figures. And if sure. you look at Ethiopia and the world, one of its uh, claims to fame is never being colonized. So I believe that, you know, of course, you don't want to go too crazy like QAnon people. But to be a little bit, you know, skeptical, to be a little bit uh, dubious... To, to constantly be aware that there is wax and gold, that mm -hmm. they're both, and to look for the gold, I think is a uh, essential way of surviving uh, the world that we live in. Absolutely. You know? And uh, what was I going to say before? I don't know, but what I, I mean, what I can say... Oh, right, right. Realize, realize, realize real lies. Yes, exactly that. True That's the lies. simplest way to explain this wax and gold thing. And is that if you can see the world this way, yes, you might get a little carried away. You might sound a little crazy. But it does help to realize the real lies with your real eyes. Right. Okay, and, and I mean, you know, uh, when, whenever you explain these things to me at length, as you're about to do uh, regarding the cold chain, like, it doesn't sound crazy to me. It, it makes sense. It's very clear-eyed. You know, not you, you don't have an agenda. Yeah, I'm not, and I'm not saying I have it all figured out. I'm just saying... You know, let's let's uh, let's do away with this conspiracy theory epithet. Let's just try and be evidence based. But uh, you know, like we just lived through Trump. Like, uh, let's get real here. Do you know what I mean? Yep. Yep. The U.S. government has now completely changed its story about the origin of the pandemic. Now, I'm not saying you should always believe the U.S. government, but I'm saying it is very interesting that they're changing their story now, and especially that they're changing the story after we just almost had. A Middle Eastern war, 
that what that just ended a few days ago with the ceasefire. We'll, we'll get into that yeah, later. Yeah. Well, so and also just you know wax and gold. Uh, if we're looking at at multiple levels here, wax, right? Vinyl, the, the many meanings. The many meanings. Yeah, you know, the wax, vinyl records. They call them sometimes referred to as wax. There are gold records too. If you sell half a million copies of your record, you get a literal gold record to hang on your wall. Is it actually made of gold? Uh, I think it's like gold plated, maybe cool. very uh, cool gold alloy. I don't know. I'm sure the record companies try to cut his, cut corners, so maybe it's not real gold. I don't know. That's something to look into, maybe for future future podcasts. But uh, uh, but so anyway, uh, before we go further, wax. You're listening to Wax and Gold. Wax and brought gold. to you by Rolled Gold Pretzels. Shout out rolled, to the pretzels. Rolled Gold. They <laughs> they're making they me do, salty. They they're making make, me thirsty. They make you thirsty. They'll change your life. Tell your husband. Tell your wife. Rolled gold. All right. Now, now we've got that out of the way. Um, for my part of the uh, today's episode, I'm going to be discussing Richard Pinus's 1979 album, Iceland. Okay. And uh, Richard Pinus is a legendary French um, avant-garde Pinas. electronic musician yeah it's spelled p-i-n-h-a-s richard pinus i looked it up uh, apparently it's is pronounced something like pinus mm. <laughs> not penis or pin pinhis as i kind of said in my head uh but and richard maybe it's like richard or ricard i don't know but i say richard because it's what it looks like and uh you His know his name is I'm dick penis about. exactly <laughs> dick penis Iceland. so you picked it because so uh, yeah, I picked it because you said today's episode you're talking right. You're going to be talking about the cold chain right. theory of coronavirus transmission. Yes, correct. Yes, and to come, but yes, to come. We'll get into that in a minute. Uh, for, but first, I'm going to talk talk about Iceland, and, right? Because uh, it sounds very it sounds cold. very cold. Right. I mean, let's let's hear for it. the obvious reasons. It's called Iceland, so you know that's sort of very on the nose, but. The sound of the music on this album, it, I mean, it is one of the most, I mean, it is the most cold, austere sounding, um, foreboding albums that I know of. So Rich, Richard Pinus, to give a little background on this guy, um, he was a, uh, he was born in France, 1951. Um, he was a lecturer, um, at the uh, Sorbonne, I believe, uh, on philosophy cool. in the early 70s. But uh, he ended up uh, abandoning that, or at least went to pursue music full-time um, in the early 70s. And he formed this band called Heldon um, with a few other guys, but he was he was very much the leader and, and the visionary. And um, they are, you know, in, in underground music circles, they're, um, you know, very highly regarded sort of like uh, prog, space rock, prog rock, electronic. They, they incorporated a lot of analog synthesizers into the music. So he, he, would you say, so he's a French philosopher who is one of the founders of, of French electronic music? Yeah. I founding mean, fathers? Or? Founding fa- I mean, the interesting thing about, about French electronic music is that um, in like the 40s and 50s, uh, that was sort of when music concrete or concrete music was was developed in France at this um, uh, the GRM it stands for Groupe de Recherche Musicale in French. That was uh, founded by the French composer Pierre Schaeffer, 
and uh, there's so this sort of like first generation of French uh, music concrete guys like uh, Pierre Henri, um, Luc Ferrari, uh, and I think Ed- Edgar Varese, like you brought, Edgar you Varese. mentioned earlier. Yeah, he's kind of associated. But these are basically it's like you know really avant-garde electronic music that incorporates like tape, the manipulation of of analog tape yeah. and editing of tape to kind of create these like sound assemblages that um it's like using the tape the it's using the medium of it's using the tape itself as the instrument exactly and sort of achieving like a sonic result that wouldn't be possible any other way and i guess you could also kind of think of it as an early form of sampling um because you know they would record you know make original recordings field recordings or even take like existing like orchestral recordings of other other pieces of music and kind of wow. assemble them into these uh, really amazing trippy soundscapes. Um, but they also experimented with early synthesis, like uh, early analog synthesizers. And um, are they almost like science, like scientist yeah, musicians? Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's it's a very like academic research environment. So it literally is or was and it still is this this institute still exists but uh you know a, a place where well, what's the institute again uh grm yeah uh and um yeah it's basically i mean a lot of the technology <laughs> technology that was developed at, at grm was like you know appropriated and used later in, in pop music what so you're saying grm is like the wuhan institute of virology for electronic music I mean, or for yeah, Dietrich, on rather. one level, you know, I think that I think that's a good analogy. I mean, it's, think it's it's developed through R and D scientifically. R and yes, exactly. And, and this is where we get the electronic art form in music. Yes, yes, a lot of the wow. stuff that they developed, you know, those principles and that technology uh, was used later in. I mean, you know, in the, the '60s, the the Beatles. Uh, I mean, you know, like Re- Revolution 9 on the White Album, you know, that was influenced well by Carline Stockhausen, the German composer, but that was basically music concrete, a, a nine-minute piece of music concrete on a pop album by the, the biggest band in the world. Um, right. And, you know, it's... Wait, which, which is the nine-minute song? Uh, Revolution 9 on the Beatles' White Album. Are you familiar with this? I'm not. <laughs> I'm not. Really? I'm uh, not. Oh God. Have you never heard the White Album? Like all I've never heard the Beatles. Real oh, okay. All right. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. No, no, that's I yeah, I just you know I mean some people, you know, they're definitely a sort of we're in the midst of like a Beatles anti Beatles backlash. No, 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 I'm not especially a backlash. Especially from like Zoomers and stuff, but uh, I mean we'll we can talk about the Beatles in another time, but uh what but, we're but this about is this is cr- I mean, I actually never knew this until just now. Like you're saying electronic all of electronic music and, and the forebears of electronic music in say the Beatles or just, you know, pop music comes out of research and development at this institute in france right by I mean, these like scientists basically yeah i mean and it's not just like there are other other guys in other parts of the world and ladies working on you know do, doing similar work but this was sort of the similar ep- work episode. seminal work up uh, yes seminal similar seminal seminal work seminal work like um, seminal work that's and, wax and gold by the way yeah Oh, that's how you say that's, that's how how, you, how yeah. you say wax and gold in Amharic. In Amharic, you, that's how you say it. Seminal work. Seminal work. Wax and gold. It sounds like seminal work. It does. Wow. Uh, so and well, that's another punnery. You see so, what I'm saying? Yeah. This, I mean, this is using puns to convey deep, deep meanings. You know, 
uh, that allow you to do all kinds of things that you couldn't normally, you know. Uh, anyway, sorry, right. go on. Uh, so the seminal work we're talking about today is the work <laughs> of Heldon and Richard Pinyas. So I was getting, you know, they kind of gave that background, um, but... Richard Pina started this band Heldon, and they put out, between 1974 and 1979, they put out seven albums, so they were really prolific. One of them was a double album, and um, he was really in, he was influenced a lot and overtly, uh, especially in the beginning, by uh, Robert Fripp and King Crimson. So I, I, don't, I know you've heard of King Crimson in the sense that they, they were like the first major progressive rock band. Um, British band led by guitarist Robert Fripp. Okay. And their 1969 song, um, 21st Century Schizoid Man, right. as you know, was sampled From the by Kanye, Kanye song. Right. And uh, But they were, uh, you know, revolutionary, kicked off the prog rock movement. You know, I'm a total prog head. Uh, and, you know, so we'll be, we'll be talking about a lot of that in, in, the, in future episodes. But, um, you know, like on the second Heldon album, there's a track called In the Wake of King Fripp. He's influenced by, by Fripp. By Fripp, yeah. And Fripp, King Fripp from King Crimson. Correct. And Fripp, uh, you know, is his guitar style is very uh, kind of avant-garde. And, and he, you know, is known for playing like kind of searing, dissonant, um, you know, distorted lead guitar. And, uh, and you know, King Crimson got in especially in the mid 70s into like a lot of like advanced free improvisation stuff that was kind of un, you know pretty uh, revolutionary for a rock band at the time but you know I, I as much as Heldon and and Richard Pinyas were influenced by Fripp and King Crimson they he definitely did his own thing and and to me the sound of Heldon and Pinyas albums is um just it's incredibly fascinating, incredibly ahead of its time, uh, and I, I nine nine out of ten times I'd, I'd listen to Heldon over King Crimson. Um, but that's you know that's my personal taste. But you know basically the, these albums they're all they're all instrumental, and they're sort of. So you're saying uh, Fripp walked so that so that Pinus could Pin, run. Pinus could run through yes, the snow. That's how I see the it. The tundra. Right, um, but you know so Heldon. Uh, you know, over the course of their seven albums, there's definitely some some you can hear development, but the major hallmarks of their music are um, these sort of uh, cybernetic sounding, uh, droning and 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 arpeggiated um, analog synthesizers, and uh, and um, Pinus's guitar playing, which is kind of ranges from uh, you know kind of this gentle blissful um uh you know strumming and ar arpeggiated riffs to like really um dissonant and distorted like borderline metal uh like heavy metal sounding um uh like just riffage and nice. uh and also they used a lot of like kind of primitive drum machines so um you know, a lot of the electronic music, like early electronic rock, cosmic synth out music from the 70s, you know, a lot of it is, is kind of, people hear it now and they say, oh, that sounds really dated, you know, that sounds like, and, and I don't know, I kind of have a fraught yeah. relationship with the concept of, of music being dated. But because, this doesn't sound like that. Well, I mean, you know, like obviously any piece of music is going to be tethered to the 
time in which it was produced. But always. This, this, I mean, can we can we listen to this now or? Uh, I, can play I mean, it sounds like the, the first time you play this for me. It sounds like now. Yeah, I mean that's. It the sounds like climate change. It sounds like the end of the world. It sounds mm -hmm. fucking dystopian. Yeah. It sounds rich. think it's a matter of taste so like you listen to some records that have synths on them from the 70s and they sound totally like just kind of quaint and almost i mean it you know just kind of cringy for yeah. lack of of a better term at the moment but like the the sound like, like the blade runner soundtrack yeah i mean I, I that was something i was kind of comparing it to so th this album we're talking about today is it's called iceland and it's richard pinus's third solo album and it came out in 79, and actually that's the year that Heldon disbanded. So Heldon put out these seven albums, and uh, they, um, and then Richard Pinius went and put out a few solo albums. This is the third one, and it's pretty much all uh, synthesizer, analog synthesizers with some guitar, some uh, drum machine, and live drums on one track only. Um, but... It's basically uh, the, the sounds, the the synthesizer sounds that he gets on this album, just conjure up the most like desolate, barren, infinite tundra mm. landscape. Like when yeah. I listen to this music, I feel like I'm trudging through, um, just like a blizzard, and yeah. um you know you listen to so basically there are two major compositions on this album one of them is called iceland hmm. and the other one is called the last kings of thule and the way the album is sequenced is iceland is, they're each they're each broken up into multiple parts and alternated so the track list goes iceland part one which is just like a minute long like brown kind of synth uh, yeah. fanfare that's just a minute long and then there's Ooh. iceland part two Nice. which starts off with um you know this sort of uh insistent drum machine pattern that almost sounds like kind of like a slowed down machine gun yeah. and it's and it's in i think nine four time signature so it's kind of this un you're on this uneven ground because it's yes. it's it's at this odd the, the, you know the odd earth is shifting beneath your feet right and then this sort of um queasy wavering like droning synth emerges yes. and you know it's kind of this this uh my you know this kind of gl gloomy minor minor chord and that kind of swells and and recedes and uh it, and it kind of gradually builds so it's nine it's about nine and a half minutes long and um so you're just sort of it just sets this this the most foreboding vibe yeah. and and it so it's, feels it's the planet Hoth. Yes, literally, I feel like I'm walking through planet Hoth, and and it's um, and it's just ice cold. So cold. It just is some of the coldest music I know. Right.
and towards the end of this track, uh, towards the end of Iceland Part 2, you, these sort of, I don't know if they're real voices or if they're synthesized, but you, it's, you yeah, start to hear this creepy breathing. <laughs> yeah. Like, uh, um, you know, almost like, you know, it's either you, like your own yeah. gasps as you're trudging through this landscape or there's these sort of weird, maybe it's weird ice creatures. Like It sounds like the pandemic. Yeah. Uh, to me, I mean, I, I've listened to this a ton uh, in the last in the last year and um it's i mean it it it's very um it's very grim but it's at the same time there's something kind of soothing about it right and i think part of that comes from you know like and the analog synthesizers that that are used on this as opposed to digital synthesizers which sort of came the advent of those was in the 1980s but you know a lot of people describe analog synthesizers as sort of having a warm feeling and as opposed to to you know like kind of more of a, the colder timbre of digital synthesizers. So ironically, while this music does sound very cold, there is sort of like a warmth to It's the, human. Yeah, there is kind of a human quality to the sound of the, of the synthesizers. Right, right. I, explain what is timbre. So tam, yeah, timbre. So that's T-I-M-B-R-E and... Oh, yeah. I always thought it was timbre. Well, that's that's how it looks like it's spelled, but it is pronounced timbre. Timbre, okay. And, uh, and basically, that's just referring to like to the texture of a sound or an instrument. Texture. It's basically how it sounds. So that's like the timbre of a saxophone is sort of, you know, has kind of more grit grit yeah. to it than, for example, a trumpet. A trumpet has more of like a, you know, like a pure kind of a, a, a purity to the tone or a timbre, whereas... You know, saxophone has kind of that more gritty mm. um, timbre. And so when you're talking about a timbre, I think it's, I liken it to like the texture of the sound. Sure, you know? sure, sure. The, uh, the first time you described the album, before you, you ever played it for me, you said it's what Blade Runner should have been. Right. So, um, you know, the, the soundtrack to Ridley Scott's Blade Runner from 1982 is by Vangelis, who is, uh, is you know, legendary Greek... Um, composer, uh, he he made a lot of you know like synthesizer, but he's definitely a, a contemporary of of Richard Pinus and and uh, has made a lot, you know he's famous also for the Chariots of Fire soundtrack, you know like doom 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 doom, but and it's all it's like cool because it's so iconic of the eighties, mm-hmm. you know. But at the same time, it is dated and it is corny. Well, I mean, just as a personal matter of taste, I love a lot of Vangelis's music, and he was also in this prog rock band in the early '70s called Aphrodite's Child. He's Greek, and uh, they made some incredible records. Uh, but I, th- I tend to think that. I mean, it's the, the, not it's the, not timeless like this is. Yeah, I would say the timbre of the synths that Vangelis uses. To me, they, there's something about them that just doesn't sound as futuristic. Or uh, and there's something that's uh, a little they're just less compelling to me than the synths on most Heldon and Richard Pinus records. Like these, you know, the Heldon and, and Pinus records have kind of a whole like a cyberpunk vibe yes. going through the whole thing. And they, I mean, this is before cyberpunk was even a concept. But he, you know, the album covers use all this sci-fi imagery, and the music literally sounds. I think it still sounds like the future, sure. even though it uses all of these. Uh, antiquated tools right uh you know he was very visionary right it still sounds like what's to come right it doesn't sound like the past it sounds to it sounds like the future to me right and um what i also i was reminded of dune 
I was like visualizing Dune, mm -hmm. but like an icy Dune or something like yeah. Hoth. Yeah. And then you told me that his other album is totally based on Dune. Right. Yeah. The, so the album that Richard Pinus put out um, a year before Iceland is called Chronolize, and it's basically based on and inspired by uh, the Frank, Frank Herbert's Dune. You know, this is before the David Lynch movie was made, but like the titles are, are of the tracks are like Paul Atreides, Duncan yeah. Idaho, basically named after characters from Dune. And it has a similar... The Benny Jesserit. Benny Jesserit, right. And, and as you see, I have, it, I have it on vinyl. We're looking at the cover right yeah. now. This is maybe my favorite album cover of all time. Great it's, cover. Yeah, it's like basically it's black and white. Um, and it, 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 it looks, looks like a like Baylatar movie it looks mixed with like the Holocaust. Film, it looks kind of like a film contact sheet. But what it is really, it's like an array of black and white cathode ray video monitors yes. and you can see like film stills of these weird Incredible. random film stills and they all have this kind of vague sinister look about them and then in the bottom right corner you see there's a f an image on one of the screens of Pinus himself of his face right. and he has this kind of like dark curly hair and his face his hair is like distorted right. to look like to me like a QR code oh yeah oh yeah well now it looked like QR code at the time it probably looks like magnetic the magnetic tape yeah, being magnetic stripped, tape right? Yeah, magnetic tape interference or something. I mean, this to me is Lynchian before Lynchian. Yeah. Right. You Absolutely. Know, Lynch tapped into something that already exists. And this guy was already there. Yep. Um, so, any, it, anyway. What, 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 what year was, <laughs> the, you said this, uh, the, the, the Dune album. The Dune album, Chronalized. Chronalized. What year is that? That's 1978. Amazing. And yes. this album is 1979, recorded and released 1980, correct? No, I think it was written and like recorded and released in 79. And oh. also, I'll mention, for some reason, this is frustrating, but Iceland is the only one of Richard Pinus's early solo albums that's not currently available to stream on like Spotify and, yeah. uh, and Apple you know, ma major streaming sites, but it is on... You, you can hear it on YouTube in full. And also it was re reissued just a couple years ago by the label Superior Viaduct mm. uh, put out a vinyl reissue of it. Great um, name. So it's, yeah, I mean, it's available. At, uh, I mean, absolutely you should hear it. Just to, to kind of, you know, go finish going through the album. The Last Kings of Thule is this the other piece on it. And, uh, and it's sort of, um, you know, whereas the Iceland pieces are this synth-based, drum machine-based uh, kind of landscape tundra landscape the last kings of Thule is is more of like a it is backed by this uh insistent drum machine click click just clicking yeah. along and then um and but he plays guitar on this one and it's basically he's basically just ripping this like shredding uh this guitar solo uh, over the uh you know mechanized um, right. backing track of drum machines and synths Mechanized meets this kind of neo-feudal, dune-like world. Yeah. I mean, 1979 is a huge year in geopolitics. It's the year of the Iranian Revolution. It's the mm -hmm. year of the invasion of Afghanistan. It's the year of the Mecca uprising, which led to 
everything that we associate with uh, the funding for jihadi terrorism. It's the yeah. year of the Sandinista revolution. It's the year that Reagan, you know, who's the original Trump, really, comes out of the woodwork. And I mean, like, if you ever read The Watchmen, 1979 and 1980 felt like the world was ending because it was. Mm -hmm. And I feel when you first played this to me, it felt like he was seeing what was coming. It's he's totally, describing the. It's totally end of the world music. He's describing the end of the world coming, like he's describing the '80s world, mm -hmm. but he's still using the language and the the rich texture of what we associate with the '70s, like the analog versus the digital. Exactly. Exactly. So it's like this, like the Blade Runner soundtrack, because it's actually from the '80s. It can't really. It's like trapped by being in the '80s. You know what I mean? Like mm -hmm. it, it's like you can only. When you're so, it's almost like now, right? Like only now that we're in 2021 can we finally see the last 40 years. Right. And in a similar way, this was obviously I, I I don't know much about him personally, but when I hear this, I feel I can hear him uh, seeing what's coming in 1979. Yep, that's what it feels like. I mean, you know, we don't. <laughs> uh, I wish I could you know talk to him and and see what what was really going through his head when he made this music but you you do get this it it is feel like it's eerie premonition right and like uh, like you right. know a message both from and to the future right uh, from you know from 1979 definitely right. like rooted in those sounds of the time right um but you know just to to finish up the last track on the so this is a, i mean it's a very bleak sounding album as i've said many times but the last piece on the album is called Greenland, mm. and um, the album is Iceland. The last song, the last is, song Greenland. is Greenland, and this uh, Greenland it's it's the, the nine minute track that closes the album, and it's really the only time in the album that he kind of lets lets up on this relentless darkness and lets the light shine through, mm. and it's it's sort of this it's based around this synth riff in six yes. eight time signature so it kind of has this like robot waltz feel to it and um and it's uh, you know it definitely has a less gloomy vibe than what than than the rest of the album musically and um and it kind of slowly builds there are many layers of synths kind of fluttering and mm. droning and squeaking in and out of the mix and uh, and it also like I think about halfway through, um, there's actually live drums on the track, mm. so you actually you feel more of a human presence right. um, coming through. But it's really gorgeous. You know what it reminds me of? Life finds a way. Life, uh, Life finds, finds a way. way. Like in Jurassic Park? Yeah. Um, in spite of X, Y, and Z. Right. Life finds I, a way. Yes. And and so I like that, you know, as relentlessly uh, gloomy as this album is, he ends it on this kind of semi-optimistic sounding note. I mean, it's all instrumental music, so mm. it's sort of... I, there's some degree of maybe where we're projecting our, our own emotions onto it mm. but um 
it's uh, it's a beautiful piece of music. I listen, uh, it's what I listen to the most. You know, this can get a bit heavy, but you know, Greenland, it's it's something I'm I'm always in the mood for. Was this one of your number one albums during the last year, the pandemic year? Yeah, I definitely. I mean, I listened to this. There was a period, maybe of like a month-long period last year when I listened to it every night as I wow. was falling asleep. Yeah, wow. It's really, yeah, it's it's um, it's great just to put headphones on and just get lost in this as you're like right. drifting in and out of consciousness. Sure. And um, it's and it ends with a bit of hope, sort of. Right. Or and is it hope, or how, what would you say? I'd say or it's maybe some kind of faith or something. Yeah. You know, it's a glimmer of hope. It's not, I mean, it's not like a, you know, it's not a cheer. It's not walking yeah. on sunshine, no, but it's, it's but it's, um, there's sort of like a sober yes. um, optimism that is, right. that it evokes. And uh, that's the last track on the original album. Now, sober and lucid. Yes. Yeah. Now, when Iceland was reissued I, in the 90s, I think for the first time, like on CD, um, there was a bonus track. And there still is on, on the current reissue, the new reissue. There, this bonus track is there, but it's called Winter Music, and it is a 24-minute-long track that was recorded by Pinus in 1983. So actually, so that was four years after the original album came out. But mm. it it relates, you know, obviously the, from the title thematically, but also like sonically, it fits in really well with the rest of the album. It's it's beatless. It's basically just a this long drawn out synth drone scape so it's um it sort of has this warm well warm and cold i i uh, this to me evokes you know i imagine that i'm i'm like wrapped up in a you know one of those industrial strength sleeping bags that they that people <laughs> use when they're trekking through you know, Antarctica or the yeah. tundra, you know, like backpackers or mountain, right. or, the, or Mount Everest, you know, or I'm, I'm in my tent and it's, it, there's something very cozy about it. It's like, I'm <laughs> in, very cozy and warm and curled up while this, uh, blizzard is raging around me, but I'm, sure. you know, I have a fire or, you right. know, some, some sort You're of surviving. Heat. Right. Um, yeah. but it's just a very soothing meditative drone mm. yes. tr- and develops very slowly. It's very patient. Yeah. Uh, I love this kind of music. There, uh, you know, it, this is, I think, the only Richard Pena's track that I've heard that's that's like this. Really, this. yeah. It's as, like the, it's like a, if I pictured this, I would like there would be a lot of blue, like really dark blue on the edges, mm-hmm. and then there would be a figure, and inside of him is extremely warm red, and yeah. he's surviving. Hoth. He's surviving this completely uninhabitable world. Right. Which is, which ought to kill him. And he's surviving somehow. He's got this warmth inside of him. He is 98 degrees. 98 degrees. And uh, his son that was like actually... A, that was like a boy band, right? Yeah, no, I was saying Richard Pinus' son was in 98 degrees. <laughs> no, he wasn't. He was born in America. No, I'm just I'm kidding. But that would be wild. Maybe, Maybe there is some sort of connection we should look into that so you know i think why you listen to this well in addition to all the incredible technical reasons and evocative reasons we've gone into is we were all surviving the last year well i mean of course not all of us were in equal amounts of danger of course not 
But this is a survival album. Yeah. It's about surviving. I think so. I th- I mean, it definitely... It's useful music. It's, it, it's... You know, I mean, it's instrumental music. So it's whatever... It's whatever you want it to be in a way. However it makes you feel. Mm. You know, it's, it's sort of a blank slate. Not blank, but... Um, it it is for me. It's it's it was very comforting. Yes, and and extremely like just I don't know. It just it's exactly when you first I was like this is now. This is the music for now. Yep. This music conveys now and the last year. Definitely. So, you know, you 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 kind of we're talking to me about the cold chain, and this is what came to mind. Yes. I think it's you know if you were to make a movie about the cold chain. This would be a perfect soundtrack. This would be the soundtrack. I think, but yeah. Okay. But what? So but what? What is the cold chain? What is the cold? Why don't you? Chain. Okay. Why don't we move into that? All right. Let's cut to commercials. <laughs> All right. We'll be right back. You're listening to Wax and Gold, Episode One, Cold Chain, Cold, cold Train. train. <laughs> We are back. We're back, and we're about to do to do the damn thing. This yes, is sir. this is the meat, the meat and the potatoes. Interest of full disclosure, we just had a little drink. Um, just to uh, oil the gears, oil the calibrate uh, the system, lubricate. And uh, so Burko is about to go off, right, and expound his. Uh, the cold chain right theory so right. the cold chain of events cold chain of events so right. so what is the cold chain okay well b- before we get into cold chain let's talk about today's news first of all I okay mean, obviously we are all living in the pandemic mm-hmm. uh it is may what day is it 20 uh, may 23rd 2021 we are now more than 12 months into the pandemic so it's a bit of a mystery how many months we are. Mm-hmm. What um, do you mean by that? Well, um, you know, the day that the, the world went on world alert, I remember when I was in Ethiopia and the world shut down, it was actually, it was Friday the 13th in March 2020 mm-hmm. when Trump said a national emergency and countries started to shut down and I wasn't sure if I was even going to be able to get into the country or out of the country. Yeah. And I basically had to leave my whole life behind and come back to America because the world was ending. However, there was obviously COVID before that. There was, COVID, you know, there was a pandemic in China and Wuhan, mm-hmm. which uh, started to hit the radar in January 2020, uh, also December t- 2019. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there are also these... Um, you know, there are these researchers and epidemiologists who have been looking for signs of COVID. When was the earliest time that it was uh, found in uh, samples? You know, and so when is so? When is that? What's the earliest evidence that we have of that's like right. agreed upon that when when the earliest well, well, found agree, agreed upon? Evidence. That's a great uh, 
that's where many people would split hairs. Uh-huh. So there's no consensus. Well, what um, the earliest that COVID has been found in a sample is March 12th, 2019, in wastewater in Barcelona. And what they really? were doing in Barcelona, they were trying to find when it first hit Barcelona. Mm-hmm. And they were using, you know, scientific experiments, use a control. So they assumed, of course, it would not be in the March 12th. Uh, because that's so early and what they found that seems really early it yeah. is really early and what they found was it was in that sample um it was never followed up on and when um, was this found this was found by spanish researchers uh last year in 2020 okay. so so they're going back and looking at things that were collected and how can they be sure that this is like um you know a non well some people who are skeptics of this sample uh, there's a woman named Alina Chan who I'll talk a little bit more about. She, Alina Chan is an extreme advocate. And when I say extreme, I don't mean she's an extremist because I, I, I don't think that's fair to call someone an extremist. I will say that she is quite openly anti-China. And she's quite openly advocating on a scientific basis that it leaked from the Wuhan Institute of Virology. And so she attacks studies that show that it was um, emerging earlier than in Wuhan because I think it's pretty clear from her, you know, body of work on Twitter, which is where she does most of her publishing, that... And what uh, is she? Is she an independent person? She's an independent... I think she's a postdoc at MIT... And she was one, you know, you have to remember over the last year, you know, Trump and Pompeo were promoting the Wuhan theory. Mm-hmm. I think the first po- U.S. politician was actually Tom Cotton. It's very interesting because he's very much associated with the Emirates. We'll get into that later. Um, but these, you know, very far right wing politicians. At the time, we had a very far right wing government with mm-hmm. Trump. were promoting that the uh, virus originated from the lab in Wuhan. And I'm not here to totally disagree with that. If you remember at the start of the show, what I said was, let's look for the gold in the wax. You know, I think that there is gold to be found in many of these different theories. If we can just take our, you know, uh, kind of step back a second and stop being so partisan Mm -hmm. and just just look at it uh, a bit look at the facts just look at well well (laughs) facts just just look at it without our biases you know what i'm saying right so does it look like the wuhan institute of virology experimented on coronaviruses yes does it look like they collected coronaviruses yes does it look like they collected coronaviruses from bats yes does it look like there may have been some cover-up there in light yeah. of the fact that, you know, the, the pandemic writ large did gain prominence in Wuhan. Um, does it look like the Wuhan Institute of Virology and the Chinese government may be hiding something about what happened at that lab? I believe so, yes. Okay. Was there gain of function research at this lab? Yes. What is gain of function? Gain of function is taking a virus. So th- this was a, a, a source of um, some confusion early on, and I think it was um, intentional in some way, mm-hmm. which is, is this virus natural or not? Well, 
uh, what's the difference between natural and not natural? You know, the virus is all all coronaviruses and all, most viruses in general mm -hmm. are found in bats because bats are a mammal that basically runs a fever every day because mm. it's flying. And when it's flying, it, it generates it's a lot of heat. body temperature increases. Exactly. So this is a perfect place for viruses that... It doesn't have like a normal immune system because it, does, it doesn't need one. Oh, okay. So, so the virus thrives like virus, at the All kinds of viruses thrive in bats. Okay. So virus researchers love bats. They collect bats. Yeah. They extract viruses from bats. And gain-of-function research, as far as I know... I'm not an epidemiologist, by the way. Uh, is to take... The gain-of-function research is to take a so-called natural virus from a bat and make it more virulent, more lethal, and um, make it stronger in the lab as a way to see how it behaves in order to anticipate how a virus might, you know, how yeah. a pandemic-like virus would spread around the world and how it would act in a lab and how it would act biologically right. in a microscope I, and whatever. And I think I've, I've told you about this, but I used to work uh, as a fact checker several years ago. I worked as a fact checker for several magazines. Um, best job I've ever had. I love it. I loved it. But, you know, print print media, sort of a sinking ship even then and is now. So I'm, I'm not doing that anymore. But when I worked uh, mainly at, I was at Popular Mechanics Magazine and... I fact-checked a feature on a virologist at the University of Wisconsin mm. uh, named Dr. Kawaoka, and uh, Japanese, a Japanese virologist, and he was very, you know, it was very controversial because in his lab he allowed potentially pandemic strains of bird flu, mm. like H1N1, uh, to you know na evolve naturally in his lab. Basically, the exact process you're you're explaining. Um, you know, with the idea of, well, if we can understand how these viruses, which will inevitably, one of these pandemic level right, strains is evolve, going to they'll mutate evolve to get in nature. Yeah, we want to understand it so we right. can better combat it when it inevitably emerges in nature. And, you know, this is very controversial. I mean, even though the lab is extremely, has, it has and had extremely high security standards, you know, it still made people nervous at the time. And that was 2015. Mm. And that, so, you know, you, just because of, of having done that work, um, that's, you know, when, when COVID-19 happened, it's, I, it's sort of, I, I was sort of expect, you know, in the back of my mind, I knew this was something that was going to happen mm. eventually. I didn't expect it to happen so soon, but um, yeah, so I understand how these, these labs, right. and there are many labs like this around the world, Right. but biosafety lab, uh, and they have different levels, biosafety lab three, biosafety lab four, I think four is the highest. Yes. And that yeah. is what Wuhan, Wuhan, Wuhan. Yeah. I don't know if it's Wuhan. I think it's pronounced Wuhan, but you know, whatever, however you want to say it. We're debating <laughs> if we can make a Wu-Tang. Is that, is that uh, problematic? I don't know. Uh, well it's, there it is. It's out of the bag. Look, we said look, it. look, obviously Let's not go down that road. Mm -hmm. um, right, so go, yeah, Biosafety go labs, right. Yes. So I think gain-of-function research would take it almost a step farther than what you were talking about. Instead of watching how it naturally evolves, mm -hmm. they would actually try and make it stronger with uh, human intervention. Uh, I think that's what, he, what this dude I, right. was that, doing. That is the definition, I, th I believe, of gain-of-function research. Okay. Human intervention is intentionally alternate, uh, altering the genetic code or mm -hmm. altering the 
you know, the, there's a lot of talk about the fu- the furin cleavage site. I'm not a biologist. I'm not a scientist. Mm-hmm. But uh, there is a scientist at MIT uh, named Alina Chan, and she has many uh, more. Uh, at first, she was a bit of a lonely voice, which is why I really kind of su- liked her and supported her. Uh, but she's she's started to get more um, popularity, more supporters, and in some ways, I've started to become more suspicious of her because many of her supporters are now very closely connected in the U.S. government, such as one of her uh, main boosters, whose name is Jamie Metzl, who was in the National Security Council. Mm-hmm. And he's the one who went on to 60 Minutes and started p- promoting her promoting her and promoting the lab leak theory of that it originated in Wuhan as an accident, and that is how coronavirus um, began. Okay. Now, again, I also, I'm not... Uh, I also think it probably did originate at Wuhan. I, I'm going to try and discern what I, what I believe versus mm-hmm. um, not just so what y- like y- hard y- facts are, but also like the general consensus. Yeah, I, I hope that. So uh, there's the there's the consensus, and there's what right. you have, right. have have the conclusions you've drawn, right. and maybe and sometimes those align, and sometimes those don't. Right. So, so maybe I'll put out the general consensus first, because the general consensus has changed. Right. Um. And the general consensus a year ago was, you know, there was Pompeo and Trump and Tom Cotton saying it came from the Wuhan lab. Mm -hmm. And all the people against Trump were saying this is him trying to bait China. Mm -hmm. And there's no evidence of a lab leak. It's uh, natural. And this is what, you know, every I mean, this was general consensus in the scientific community, Gates Foundation um, and. The Lancet, which is the high, most pre- prestigious medical journal, mm-hmm. came out with this letter with all these uh, epidemiologists and doctors saying lab leak is is a bullshit not, theory. Yeah, it's okay. not. It's conspiracy theory, and this happened naturally. Yeah. It turns out that the we know now. I mean, this is not speculation. That the letter uh, saying that lab leak is impossible and that it is definitely natural was orchestrated by a man named Peter Daszak. Again, this is general because this is not my speculation. Like, like, how do you spell that? D A S Z A K. Now, one year, here's, and this goes back to the conspiracy theory thing, right? Mm-hmm. A year ago, what I'm saying now would be considered conspiracy theory. Mm-hmm. And in fact, it was written about one year ago in the New Yorker with the article promoting him as a kind of liberal, um, you know, he's for the science like, yeah, versus he's, Trump, he's who's against the science. Reason versus. Right, he's reason. Well, now the, the, the consensus. Uh, is that Dazak organized this letter. He kind of intimidated and bullied and used his what, whatever to uh, get other scientists to agree to this letter, even though they had some reservations about what they were saying. And some of, so I, think, I think some of the people who even signed the letter have come out and said this, that Dazak kind of strong-armed us into signing this letter and we no longer really? believe it. Like what did he well, what did he do to like coerce? I'm not sure. I, I wish I could tell I could say exactly what and he did. Do, and how do so basically these people the people who signed the letter have said that they some were of, felt some of them. Some of them. Now now again, like this is the this is I mean, this is an amazing thing about you know, one year ago what I'm saying would be conventional conspiracy theory. Mm. Now it is becoming conventional wisdom. Mm. As in today, like today, this yeah. day, uh, the Wall Street Journal came out with an article saying that people, scientists at the Wuhan Institute of Virology were getting sick with COVID in November 
2019. I can I read the, just the lead of the article. By the way, the author, one of the authors of the article is the guy who promoted WMDs in Iraq. <laughs> Another author of the article is a very cool guy that uh-huh. I used to work with. I used to work with. Yeah. Not as a journalist, but as a lab technician when we both worked at NYU. Very nice, very goofy guy. Okay. You know. So here, here's the lead of the article. This is today. Three res- researchers from Chinese... Sorry. This is in a Wall Street Journal? Wall Street Journal. Three re- researchers from China's Wuhan Institute of Virology became sick enough in November 2019 that they sought hospital care, according to a previously undisclosed U.S. intelligence report that could add weight to growing calls for a fuller probe of whether the COVID-19 virus may have escaped from the laboratory. The details of the reporting go beyond a State Department fact sheet issued during the final days of the Trump administration, which said that several researchers at the lab, a center for the study of coronaviruses and other pathogens, became sick in autumn 2019, quote, with symptoms consistent with both COVID-19 and common seasonal illnesses. The disclosure of the number of researchers, the timing of their illnesses and their hospital visits come on the eve of a meeting of the World Health Organization's decision-making body, which is expected to discuss the next phase of an investigation into COVID-19's origins. This is today. Also today, Dr. Fauci, St. Fauci. Anthony Fauci. Um, I have, I'm, by the way, I'm neutral on this guy. Mm Mm-hmm. Brooklyn, Italian. Fine. I mean, he seems like a consummate professional to me. I mean, you know, he's in the mix. Yeah. He's in the mix. Uh, kind of got... Let's give to, everyone the, the benefit of the doubt. Weight of the world on his shoulders, really. I, you know, sure. I think he's done okay given. He came out today and also said he no longer uh, is convinced, which is, you know, he, he's, he's qualifying, he's couching his words, but he, he said no longer convinced that coronavirus had a natural origin Mm. and of course uh for the last year he's been saying that's conspiracy theory that's crazy um i think i want to pull up a quote of what what he said before is that okay okay? yeah go for it we can uh so in may right in may 2020 that's last year one year ago yeah fauci scoffed at the idea of a wuhan lab escape claiming quote i don't go get I don't get what they're talking about. One year later, in May 2021, he was asked if he's confident COVID-19 emerged naturally. Fauci said, no, I'm not convinced about that. Hmm. So the same day that this intelligence report comes about about Wuhan researchers getting sick, Fauci says, I'm not convinced that it happened naturally. A turnaround from what he said before. Hmm. So, okay. Do you think... And the WHO report about the investigations, the, the origins. Now, keep in mind, the WHO report has been not about the lab leak. In fact, the, the WHO has... So what, what the detractors would say is the WHO investigators were not allowed to investigate lab leak, which is true. Hmm. However, I have read the WHO report. I may be the, one of the only few non-scientists who's read it. And what it does... I'm, I'm not saying that the things were omitted. Again, wax and gold, right? Mm-hmm. There is gold to some of the lab leak stuff. Okay. But, and this is where we're going to get into cold chain. What the WHO report does show is that the highest correlation between the earliest COVID-19 positive, uh, what do you call them? Patients or the first sick people. People tested with, positive for. Yeah, the first people sick with this disease mm-hmm. 
the highest correlation they had to that wet market was not wild animals. It wasn't pangolins. It wasn't strange exotic animals. It was visiting stalls that had cold chain products. Okay. So and and by the and the and the WHO report by the way is quite meticulous about finding which stalls had these products, yeah. finding which where they went. I mean, it's it's not a some, it's a scientific study, right? So they're telling you, you know, I've read this thing. Uh-huh. Like they show where did people go, where what kind of products did they sell, and the highest correlation is cold chain products. So this is the what, WHO report. What, Burko? What are cold chain products? What cold is chain the cold products chain? are frozen meats frozen shrimp frozen food when you go to the supermarket you know that part of the the, the grocery store that's cold yeah those are cold chain products now why is it called cold chain well it came from somewhere right Mm -hmm. it was uh, a cow at some point it got slaughtered and then the meat was kept cold so while it was uh, transported prevents the decay sure I mean, Look, that, I, that, I know I'm being. I, I don't mean to be uh, facetious or condescending, but no. But it's it's a new concept to me, or it was right. before you explained it to me. So right. Well, I guess uh, I just let's think about how logistics and how 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 does your food get to the grocery store? You know, it's not all farm to table. There's uh, a supply chain. Right, supply chain exactly. So to keep that food cold on its way from the slaughterhouse or the meatpacking factory to the grocery store, it has to be transported in something called cold chain, mm-hmm. the cold chain. And it takes, uh, one, it takes a, quite a lot of infrastructure for these logistics companies, these shipping companies to do this. Because mm-hmm. they have to basically, these ships are giant refrigerators. It also means that the countries that it goes to also have to have a lot of infrastructure, relatively speaking. Yeah. You know, in the first world, we're quite used to this. We think it's... Uh, we have freezers everywhere. Right. Freezers but if you think freezers. about it, it's, it's actually quite, you know, I, coming from Ethiopia where they didn't have the infrastructure. Um, I can tell you personally, I used to take frozen meat from South Africa where my cousin lives mm-hmm. and bring it in my suitcase, 30 or 40 meats, like steaks, yeah. in my suitcase and bring them to Ethiopia and put them in my... Uh, I had a, another friend who was running a restaurant. She had a tiny little fridge in a restaurant. Mm-hmm. And I would bring these meats there. And she would sell the meat or, or sell the dish. But we were also planning to sell the meat to other restaurants. So are you, are you saying like the average household in Ethiopia does not have a freezer or a freezer? No. Or? And the average Ethiopian does not have access to a supermarket with a freezer. Mm. Consider what a supermarket really is in, in our first world conception. It is a giant... It's a giant, I mean, it has a lot of food, right? But mm-hmm. what's really cool about it, what's, what's special what's about ice it. It's ice cold about it. What's ice cold about it is it is a giant, part of it at least, in the first world, is a giant freezer for freezing cold chain products. Mm-hmm. Meat, shrimp, fish. And many countries in the developing world or third world do not have the infrastructure to support supermarkets with uh, frozen goods like that because mm-hmm. it takes a, sh- a lot of electricity. Yeah. So, you know, when they're talking about where are we going to send, how are the vaccines going to get out, one of the big variables is do these countries have logistics, have the infrastructure to support cold chain because the, the, the yeah. vaccine itself also has to be kept um, quite cold. I mean, yeah. very cold. Right. And this is one of the uh, disparities between the high-end vaccines like uh, Pfizer and Moderna versus... Mm-hmm. The more cheaper, 
the reason these vaccines are cheaper, like AstraZeneca and Johnson and Johnson, is because they require less. They they don't have to be they kept to be kept as cold, cold right? Yeah. Which takes a lot of electricity, which developing countries don't have. So okay. I w- before this pandemic hit, I would take frozen meats of high quality from South Africa, where they have a lot of infrastructure. A lot. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, I, you know, I know many of the listeners haven't lived in Africa, but South Africa is the more in many ways more developed almost than America or the Europe. I mean, it is, uh-huh. it's extremely unequal, but it is highly, highly developed infrastructure-wise. Like the, the white Afrikaners and white British people there developed a society of the highest quality of infrastructure yeah. in surrounded by third world. And so I would take meat from South Africa, I would bring it to Ethiopia where they didn't have that infrastructure, mm-hmm. but they wanted the meat because there's a new, there's an emerging middle class, they want the meat, right? Sure. So. And this is where I'm going to discern. I'm going to, I'm going to take a step away from the mainstream consensus theory and go into my own theory for a second. Okay. And then I'm going to go back. I, I hope I can discern between the two. All right. So what's the main? Okay. So you're talking about the cold chain, right? Right. I'm talking about. So cold chain is a real like this is how frozen products are transported around the world, okay. including vaccines, by the way, but also food. So how does this tie in then to right. the so, transmission so of, of coronavirus? Right. Well. Okay. Or what? I'm sorry if I'm getting ahead. Yeah. Go ahead. I'll tell you, so I'm going to give you a sneak peek of my personal theory. Okay. One of the great mysteries of the first year of the pandemic, and this was written about in The New Yorker and also David Wallace Wells at New York Magazine, why did the pandemic hit first world countries so much harder than third world countries where it was predicted to decimate the population Mm -hmm. because they have such uh, not as good health care or whatever? Yeah. And if you look... If you look, if you consider that cold chain transmission may be not the way that we transmit it between people, but the way that it is introduced into countries, Hmm. it does cold chain theory as a transmission vector, not as an origin method Mm -hmm. uh, uh, theory, but as a transmission place to another. Yeah, does match up with what we saw with the first year because the first world countries that have cold chain. And by the way, I'm including South Africa here, which I think is a really key part, right? When people say Africa didn't get hit that hard, South Africa, South Africa got hit very hard. Mm. South, what is the main difference between South Africa and the rest of Africa? Infrastructure, infrastructure. That's why I went there to get the meat. Yeah. Right. So, cold chain transmission does match up with how the virus spread in the first year, and one of the great mysteries of what they couldn't explain was why is the first world getting hit so hard and the third world is not. So let's just, that this is my conjecture. Okay. Uh, but I believe it matches up with the edit evidence. Now, what China has been saying, and of course we live in America, and, you know, we don't hear what they're saying in China. But when in China they've been saying, they've not been talking about Wuhan. And you could say, well, they're authoritarian or whatever. Mm-hmm. Now, maybe they are censoring stuff about the Wuhan Institute of Virology. But again, I'm saying there's gold in both mm-hmm. things. But what they are saying that we're not hearing here is they are saying that cold chain is the uh, way that the virus was introduced into China, not mm. from the lab. In addition, the WHO report also shows that the highest correlation between first infected patients and where they went in the market was cold chain products in the market. Hmm. In addition, 
Many scientific reports have come out in China showing how after China uh, eliminated the virus through mitigation and, uh, you know, locking people in their houses or whatever. I mean, you can agree or disagree. They did a great job. Mm-hmm. I mean, they got rid of the virus without a vaccine. Yeah. It came back. How did it come back? Cold These scientific cold. studies show that it was being reintroduced. They found it, like, found it, like, mm-hmm. like they found it, samples of it on frozen food products coming into ports. So regardless of where it, the virus originated, it is being spread... That's uh, what these Chinese be, studies seems show. Seems to be uh, spreading via cold the cold chain. That is what these Chinese studies show. Is that is that China mitigated? And again, I'm trying I'm trying to discern between my speculation and um, different consensuses, right? Mm-hmm. Because there's a consensus here and there's a consensus there. We don't hear their consensus there. Yeah. The consensus there is that it was reintroduced to China through cold chain products at ports. In addition to the Chinese studies, you could say, oh, I don't believe the Chinese studies. Well, Chinese take science pretty seriously. So let's just let's try okay. and leave our biases aside. But oh, let's say you say, okay, I don't believe China. In Singapore, which is a Western allied country, or you could say maybe a little in between, a major infectious disease uh, scientist named Dale Fisher, who's Australian. Uh-huh. And this is a big guy in infectious disease. It's not a small guy. Okay. This would be like... Fauci level. But he's, he's located in Singapore. He's located in Singapore, and he wrote a paper not saying this is the origin of the virus overall. Mm-hmm. Just saying, I am. it is interesting that countries that have eradicated the virus are getting it again. And my study is going to look into how it was reintroduced through cold chain products. And his study, you know... Um, it, his is the only study outside of China to support this theory. Not not of its origin, but just saying this. It, this is it's a spreading via the cold spread. chain. Yeah. And for some reason, it was uh, submitted and then unsubmitted for some strange bureaucratic reason that I've asked my scientist friends and they find to be a bit shady and. But this strange. but this report is out there. You can read it. The, right. The report is out there. It just has a big watermark on it that says. No longer submitted or so. So it wasn't like formally published, but it wasn't it, formally published and pre-reviewed, but mm-hmm. it was submitted and then unsubmitted. Hmm. But this is a big guy that submitted it. Okay. Okay. Because um, I and I remember hearing. I mean, maybe I'm getting ahead of things here, but I do remember, you know, reading a news story at like last year about how the uh, COVID nineteen was found in uh, some a frozen meat yes. product in. I think New Zealand. Yes, which well, was, was surprising to me because New Zealand, uh, you know, is they had eradicated. They, it. Yeah, they yes. really took care of it. I think that the and and I might be wrong, but I think the story you're thinking of is actually cold chain. Or sorry, COVID coming from New Zealand to China okay. because there was a spat between China and New Zealand, and China said we got some COVID infected products from New Zealand, and New Zealand said. Uh, we don't have COVID here. Yeah, so how the hell did that happen? Yeah. Well, China said we found it in the in the products in the so in between New Zealand and China, that's the cold chain. Okay. Okay. So, um, let's take a breath here for a second. Okay. I think we've talked about what is cold chain. We've talked about how China is promoting this theory with certain evidence. And we've also talked about how America, starting under Trump, but also increasingly more the consensus 
now, especially today, is saying that it came from the lab leak in Wuhan. Mm-hmm. I personally believe it is a combination of both. And I'll tell you... Yeah. Let's should, should, should I go more into evidence or should I just well, tell you what I think? I mean, well, yeah, why don't you just... just Tell us what you think. Tell us what you think, and then you know if there's evidence that's relevant to support it, then let's let's hear that. So, here's what I think. I think that it is introduced to countries through the cold chain. I think it is intentional. Um, when it first started, I wasn't sure if it was an accident, if it was a sabotage. Maybe they sabotaged the lab, and it just kind of goes its way on its own more and more i i believe that it is not only intentional but also controllable to an extent you think china is doing this no no oh no i do not so i think that wuhan was selected as the start of the outbreak so that in a way kind of as a red herring um, no matter how much evidence comes out about, for example, more and more evidence is coming out that it was, you know, these biologists are disagreeing about this, but more and more you're hearing people, this is what Trump used to say, more and more you're hearing people, <laughs> it's true, the consensus is shifting. The consensus is shifting in towards a lab leak, which I'm not against, but the consensus is shifting to say it is a product of gain of function, which means it's man-made. Okay. Not man-made as in totally man-made, it means... A virus was, it was isolated. To, it was allowed to evolve in a lab. Well, I, isolated from a bat, mm-hmm. tinkered with a bit to make it more infectious, more virulent, more lethal. And then now the consensus is saying, well, this is what the American government is saying, it leaked. Okay. Accident. Biological Chernobyl. What I'm saying is I think there's a kernel of truth to that, that it was tinkered with. However, I don't think it was an accident. And I think that what China is saying, talking about the cold chain, that they also have a kernel of truth, a very big kernel of truth, which is that the virus is being spread in a intentional and semi-controllable way, intentionally by infecting cold chain products and sending them to ports around the world in a in a in a manner that is not orderly to us, but is orderly to Whoever is behind it. Okay, so just stop you for a second. Right. Am I so getting that, ahead of myself? No, no. I'm just saying. Obviously, what you've just said is uh, extremely. The implications of it are extremely sinister and right. unsettling. Right. And of course, the obvious question is, if the uh, spread of coronavirus is being intentionally um, is intentionally happening by some actor or actors via the cold chain right who is doing this who right. is responsible and why right okay right so i appreciate i i like how you phrase that we have to be like careful around this stuff right because there's yeah. so many crazy like when people said oh it's uh so bill gates can install a microchip in you mm-hmm. i mean like you hold the microchip in your hand it's your cell phone that's ridiculous yeah however however uh bill gates's associations with epstein you know uh, to pull this off, I don't think it's you need Bill Gates as your. I'm going down a tangent right now. I don't think you can pull this off without some. Let me backtrack a bit. Let's let's start again. Okay. Ask your question again. 
Well, my question is, uh, if the if what you're saying is true that COVID-19 is being deliberately right. spread to specific ports in the world via the cold chain right. by some actor or actors who is right. doing this and why. Right. So I, I like that question because you've we've kind of put the how. Mm-hmm. And again, it, it is speculation, but yeah. it is speculation supported and promoted by one of the largest governments in the world mm-hmm. with... Uh, a pretty and rigorous scientific community it, it, and scientific papers. And there have been papers analyzing exactly. this, and, and there have been news reports, too. Uh, Absolutely. Um, so th- let's put the how on a shelf. I like your question because you're saying, so, okay, so we, we've I, talked about the how. Let's, now let's talk about the who and the why. And why I have a feeling where you might be going with this. So I, I want to just pause for a second to say that. So Burko, in sort of analyzing global events and... Uh, you know the, the 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 major players out there and what they're doing and why they're doing them. Uh, he's he he creates these visuals called mind maps. I mean, a mind map is kind of like it's a, you know it's a genre of image, but basically, it's 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 looks like it's a bunch of circles and each circle represents a different entity and there are lines connecting all the different circles to each other and that those represent you know relationships between. Uh, different people in the world, different countries, and, you know, the flow of money, the flow of, you know, just uh, whatever relations right. between them. And, 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 the, and the U.S. government as an entity does not exist on these mind maps. And, it, and it, the, my mind maps, I'm just looking at one now, and it looks, you know, if, if you were to show this to someone without explaining it, it looks just fucking crazy. Yes. Uh, but... Um, you know, I mean, what when, when Burko's explained to me in the past is that... Uh, you know, there are these sort of the the people who are really, you know, I get pulling the strings to so to speak, or are you know the the major players responsible for what happens in the world, um, are sort of this. Um, basically, there's like two teams, right? Yes, yes. I, so, so I think o- over the this, years, yeah. I've sent you a few mind maps. Yes. The first one I sent you a few years ago before coronavirus, Mm -hmm. and one of the major features of the mind map was there was one side versus another side. I think I color-coded it. Okay. Um, I call them Team A and Team B. All right. And generally speaking, generally speaking, one side is more associated with uh, Qatar. Mm -hmm. So we're saying Team A. Team A is... Right. And, And by the way, these are both, you know, these are both... Include made prominent. I mean, this both is the U.S. The, both sides are the U- America. Okay. So it's essentially a fracture of the United uh, of the national security state, the American national security state, where one side is fighting another. Okay. So let's lay out. That, that's a basic conception. Okay. So side A consists of who? Well, I, I, generally speaking, they're more associated with Democrats. Okay. However, I think it's more. Um, it. It's uh, it's more useful, uh, I found, to find who's more associated with Qatar, okay, whereas so who's more associated with Emirates. And here's and here's why. So so you, I'm just just so you basically you're viewing a lot of what's happening in the world as a conflict between uh, groups of 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 people, uh, entities, and a, a, fra- there's, a there's fracture the, of the national fracture, security and state. There, and there's like the Qatar side, yes, the side that's kind of coalesced around Qatar so right. we're talking about the Middle East and then there's the other side is 
coalesced around United Arab Emirates. Yes, yes. Now, I know this sounds strange because we think of America as America, the most powerful country in the world. It and sounded totally alien to me the first time you talked about it. I don't even think about these countries, to be but honest. Let's, let's think of these countries. These countries are quite new, right? Mm-hmm. And they're also ruled by one family. So they're kind of, think of them like crime families. No offense. But if one family rules, literally one family. Normal, when I say normal, by the way, I'm not judging. Mm-hmm. One uh, family in each country. Every country has its own system. You're and saying, I'm not, you're, so you're saying one family in each country or one family I'm saying that overall. a sheikdom, a kingdom, yes. is, uh, is slightly, it is a more, I was almost about to say simple, but it's really not because it's also complex because you have all these, there's still cliques within a family, right? You can think about your own family. But a, 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 a states like Qatar or the Emirates or Saudi Arabia or Bahrain, these um, royal families, these sheikdoms are families they're kingdoms ruled by one family okay and they are not the same and i'm not judging you know everyone country has but 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 countries like america or even israel are extremely complex with many different entities that Mm -hmm. are beyond just one family yeah and their internecine rivalries within the family right so it's better to think of these sheikdoms as I find it's useful to think of them as crime families. Okay. Okay. No offense. Right. No right, offense. Right. I like the Sopranos. It's just a useful analogy. Right. But what it means is that they're a little bit, you know, once one click of that family comes to rule, they're relatively, they, they, they're relatively on the same page. Whereas America or, uh, you know, countries in Europe, these are actually, I, I believe it's better to understand them as arenas where different entities and teams compete because they're not ruled by a king they're not mm-hmm. ruled by a family they're ruled they're a, a democracy yeah well demo- you, can, you can sniff a democracy you know you can sneeze at it but what democracy means is it is an arena where different entities compete yeah. whether they're Koch brothers whether it's the emirates whether it's the this click of the cia or that or whatever mm-hmm. now what i've found with these two teams is generally speaking one side is more associated with Qatar. And one side is more associated with the Emirates. And those respectively correspond, generally speaking, more with the Democrats, more with the Republicans. And However, let's keep in mind that many Republicans also were against Trump and became Lincoln Project people. And, okay, so I don't know, maybe this is like too big of a question for our purposes right now, but why Emirates and why Qatar? Right. Um, let's, let's deconstruct these two places. These are very new countries, so to speak. Let's think of them more like, I said mafia families before, but let's think of them more like slush funds. Okay. As in, America is still fucking America, right? Mm-hmm. We're so, a global superpower. Right. So these so-called countries are, think of them more like slush funds that were created by entities within the national security state in order to fund their networks of intelligence security so, whatever funds created by american yes America? yes okay. created by entities within america or britain or the west now okay. what generally speaking britain is much more allied with Qatar. um overall that 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 now now this can get confusing because sometimes you find that for example members of the royal family mm-hmm. who have been entrapped by epstein 
will be major boosties, boosters of Saudi Arabia or the Emirates. As you're saying, Saudi Arabia and Emirates are 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 linked. Well, that's a recent innovation. So what? So uh, again, I I I want to discern for the listeners. I, I I'm not trying to con- look. Come up with your own opinions. Uh-huh. You know, think for yourself. I'm telling you what I think, but I'm I'm going to try and discern between consensus history and my speculation. Okay. I, I believe my speculation is supported by the evidence, but I, I want to discern between so I, I don't sound like I'm trying to right. sell you something. Okay. So, um, Saudi Arabia uh, is a kingdom, and from 2005 to 2015, there was a guy named Abdullah. Abdullah was the crown prince from, I'm sorry, 1995 to 2015, 20 mm-hmm. years. Yes. King Fahd, who was very much uh, close to Bush, and uh, he's, he's part of what's called the Sudari Seven. Yeah. This is a group of Saudis that are very close to the Bush family, very close to the CIA, very close to America. And they are, uh, they're called Sudari Seven because they all have the same mother. You know, the original king of Saudi Arabia had like a bunch of wives. Mm-hmm. And when you have a bunch of wives, the brothers from one wife come together and form a little clique. And that's the Sudari Seven. The former ambassador, Prince Bandar, is from the Sudari Seven. Bandar Bush. Bandar Bush, who was behind 9-11. We'll get into that later. <laughs> um, and they're very, in, in a way, they're very classically Saudi. That's how they consider themselves. Okay. Now, Abdullah is actually from, you know, part of how peace is made. It's, it sounds, you know, peace in the Middle East. It's like you roll mm-hmm. your eyes. But, you know, they have a sophisticated way of making peace in these um, which comes out of many, many years of, of conflict, which is you marry someone from the opposing side. Hmm. So before Saudi Arabia, it was just Arabia. It was a, you know, it was kind of part of the Ottoman Empire, kind of not. You know, the British riled them up to have an Arab revolt. That was the Lawrence of Arabia movie. But their main rival, the Saudi family, which is a family, keep in mind, it's not like they always owned Arabia. It wasn't always Saudi Arabia. That's 20th century. The other rival family in Arabia was the Rashidi family. So when Saud, when the Saud family, the House of Saud, took over, they basically defeated the Rashidi family. But when you defeat someone in this part of the world and you want to make some kind of peace, you marry someone, yeah, yeah. You, you make a marriage uh, alliance, a diplomatic marriage, Okay. and then a child comes from that marriage. And that person is considered to be Saudi, but also Rashidi. And mm-hmm. that was Crown Prince Abdullah, who then became King Abdullah, starting 2005 to 2015. 1995 to 2015. Well, he was, right. So he was Crown Prince from 1995 to 2005. Then King Fahd died. He became the king. Okay. Now, why is this important? In 2015, Abdullah died. And now a new king was chosen. And the new king, as far as uh, uh, many reports from like Dexter Filkins and basically Bruce Rydell, everyone who's watched this area, everyone is basically, this is consensus, not my conjecture, Mm -hmm. is that the Emirates became extremely involved in Saudi politics Mm. and supported King Salman to be the new king of Saudi Arabia and his son, Mohammed bin Salman, MBS, MBS as the crown prince, who is essentially the 
ruler of Saudi Arabia because it's since his father is basically senile. Yeah. So the Emirates, within the last five years, basically took over Saudi Arabia. Mm. Now what I'm and this so so that's history. That's, okay. That's consensus. Sure. My opinion, informed speculation, is that the Emirates itself, you shouldn't consider to be its own independent, normal country. This this country is very new, even much newer than Saudi Arabia. It, it, it became when independent in yeah. 1971. Okay. And from 1971, many major figures in the CIA, like George H.W. Bush and George W. Bush, and many of the guys around around Contra, many of the guys, you know, that you associate with the Bush administration, even going back to the 80s under Reagan, were always kind of coalescing around the Emirates as a place to hide your money, hide your intelligence, as a kind of hide your kids, shield. hide your wife, hide your kids, hide your wife. It is a place where you can hide all your misdeeds, and kind of uh, um, uh, let me backtrack a second L- let me just give you with a fact okay the CIA is not allowed to spy under its own rules not under other countries rules under its own rules in one co- only one country that I know and what country is I- that? I'm talking about the CIA's own rules of course the Cu- Cuba and China don't want the CIA to spy right yeah but that's Cuba's rules under the CIA's rules, it is not allowed to spy, as far as I know, in only one country. Guess. Emirates? That's right. The CIA said to itself, yes. you're not allowed, that, that's, I'm not allowed to spy yes. in the Emirates. That's just what I'm saying, that the CIA, like this, these units of analysis that we, you know, when Trump says the deep state, mm-hmm. when we say America or the CIA, I'm saying these units of analysis are not precise enough mm. that there are different cliques right okay that there is one part of the cia the national security state that is closer to that is, is closer to Qatar. Uh-huh. this would be more like the obama side the anti-trump side okay so and another so- side uses the emirates as a slush fund and and that side was the one that got through this rule that said the cia cannot spy on the emirates and the reason is they don't want the other side to spy on the. They're using the Emirates as a shield. They're using it as a place to hide their money, to hide their, hide your kids, hide your wife. Does this make sense? Is what I'm saying? You, makes wait, sense? okay. So you're saying the CIA won't spy on Emirates because they are, you. They're hiding sensitive I, shit I, in Emirates or what? Look, here, here's one. We, let's let's deconstruct these units of analysis. Okay. The CIA, America is a, is an arena. Mm-hmm. The CIA is an arena. These are institutions, right? Yes. There are, but it's not. A, they're not monoliths. They they're are not monoliths. They are divided cliques. into different factions right. and cliques. Okay. Exactly. Cliques fight over these things. Yes. So the clique that is more associated with the Emirates, which I call Team B, sometimes I call them the Uncle. That's just a fun term. There was another journalist in the '80s who, who called them the Octopus, and he was killed. <laughs> uh, Oliver North called them the Enterprise. Okay. They are now more associated with the ent- with the Emirates. And I believe they're the ones who pushed through this rule that you can't spy in the Emirates. Why? Because they don't want their enemies within America, within the CIA, to spy on them in the Emirates. Does this make sense? They, yeah, they, but, they but kind of, they, they've kind of um, I mean, I don't, decamped I, to the Emirates. I don't really imagine the CIA as an organization that is really beholden to any rules. So I would be shocked if this... <laughs> Right, I mean that's. Uh, it, it seems well, you like make empty. a good point. You make it, all I'm doing. All I'm doing is using this as a, 
You know, I'm not saying that they don't. You're just illustrating. You're saying this is this is the formal policy that illustrates. This is the formal policy that I believe illustrates that a major click, major click. Mm-hmm. I mean, the click that's behind Reagan, behind Bush, behind Trump. That's this is team has decamped team to the B. Emirates. Team B and the AKA. What do you call them? What's your nickname for Team B? I call them the Uncle. So that's just my funny nickname for them. Okay. Well, you know, we should have a shorthand going right for this. Right. Uh, this other guy called him the Octopus. He was killed. Oliver North called him the Enterprise. I call them Team B or the uncle. Uh, Rumsfeld and Bush called them Team B. Okay. And what I'm saying is they've decamped to the Emirates. They're using the Emirates. Remember in Godfather 2 when all these mobsters are using Cuba? Mm-hmm. But they're not like they're not like trying to develop Cuba for Cuba, right? They're, no, they're using Cuba. Yeah. They're using Cuba for their own purposes. Okay. And I believe that these this clique in the national security state uses the Emirates... In a similar way, they use it to hide themselves. They use it to concentrate capital. They use it to concentrate security and intelligence apparatuses. Because, because, and the, 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 now we're going to go back to history for a second. Mm-hmm. Um, after Watergate, there was a lot of scrutiny on the CIA from the Congress. Yeah. Um, the Church Committee. Yeah. All these kind of, sh- you know, think about the movies from that time. Parallax. Uh, parallax view uh, parallax view uh, mm-hmm. three eyes of the condor there's a lot of fucking eyes on the cia at mm-hmm. langley and so what we now know um from many uh, historians and specialists in this area is that the higher echelons of what was then called the cia decamped from the cia and moved their operations outside of the langley headquarters and privatized into the private sector or into other countries like the Emirates and Saudi Arabia and whatever. Mm-hmm. Okay. And this is where you get things like Iran-Contra, where you get things like BCCI. That's the major bank that was moving money around for... I, I, I hesitate to say the CIA because I, don't, I, I want us to remember that there are different cliques, right? Mm-hmm. But let's... But you're saying the faction of the CIA... I, I'd say the, the, the major faction that you associate more with Reagan and Bush, Team B. Mm-hmm. The, the faction that you the associate uncles. with the Iraq war. The more, let's call the more hawkish side. Okay, all right. They decamped to the Emirates, and they moved their operations outside of that Langley office to the private sector and to other countries in order to hide their operations. And by private sector, you mean like defense contractors and stuff like that? Yeah, well, whatever, banks or whatever. Yeah. You know, I mean, this is what what intelligence people do. They they do cutouts. They make up companies. Okay. But what I'm saying is they really, in in some ways, they made up a whole country, Hmm. which is the Emirates. Okay. And the other side, in some ways, which is more associated with Britain, and did the same thing with Qatar. Yes, oh, that, okay. that Qatar and UAE are slush funds for these two different cliques of the bifurcated national security state. Uh huh. And bifurcated both in the U.S. and the U.K. Or you're because you're, you're talking about the U.K. being aligned with Qatar yes. predominantly. Yes. So. I but maybe maybe that's too much in the weeds for well, what well, our purposes today. The click that is against Trump is more connected with Qatar and Britain. Okay, all right. But and again, these are generalizations. As in, you know, many of the royal family of Britain are very close to Saudi Arabia and the Emirates. Mm-hmm. The King, uh, King Juan Carlos, he now lives in Abu Dhabi, right? So, but the Spanish gut go- that doesn't mean the Spanish government is associated with Abu Dhabi. In many ways, the Spanish government. If you think about. And F, every time you've ever seen, ever seen an FC Barcelona jersey, what does it say? Qatar Airways. Hmm. Right? So these, 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 what I call normal states, like 
a Western state are arenas where these different intelligence cliques compete. Okay. And one way I found of anchoring, just for my own sanity, but also I think it's easier to understand, is these cliques tend to be more associated with one of these sheikdoms versus the other, Qatar okay. versus UAE. So, and oh, that was okay. that was what my first mind map was about that I sent you years ago. Understood. So, okay, so Qatar and UAE, UAE I mean, those, so that's sort of like the litmus test when you're trying to figure out where yes. some, like, right. which team is someone playing for, right. which of these countries are right. they more aligned right. with. And it can be confusing because sometimes, like, for example, Trump, he he, he himself, the human, mm-hmm. is a, a zone of competition between the two. Mm. You know, Kushner was trying to shake down Qatar for money mm-hmm. for 666 Fifth Avenue. Okay. But in general, Trump was put there by the click around Abu Dhabi and the Emirates. Um, so it seems like em- in order to push back Iran. So is the Emirates? I mean, the, this is probably grossly simplifying things, but it sounds to me like the Emirates are more of a right wing. They've become more associated with that, yes. Okay, and then whereas Qatar is is more, more on the left, left and liberal. Liberal, yes. Okay, which is why Al Jazeera is you know more with Black Lives Matter and pro Palestine and whatever. Mm-hmm. Generally, for whatever reason, these two axes have emerged. Um, in this fashion, I mean, it's it's very. In some ways, it feels very arbitrary, but I I feel like if you l- dig more, you can find some some more reasons for it. Now, okay, I, I'm sure the listeners are wondering what the fuck does this have to do with cold chain? Yeah, well, let's bring it back. Uh, UAE, in addition to having a bunch of oil, has invested in two major other industries. Twenty years ago, they got very much into biotech, so much so that there's a major uh, part of Dubai that's called Dubiotech which was started 20 years ago. The other major way they diversified is into logistics shipping as a kind of maritime shipping power, almost like like Venice or Genoa in the olden days. Well, more like Venice. Okay. I mean, shipping is a big deal. If you control shipping, you control the world. They do that in a way that no other Middle Eastern country does. And the company they do it through is called DP World. Now, if you look at, say, India, where, where did the virus pop off India if you well, look India at right now India right now <clears throat> if you take the map of the highest caseload of India from the beginning and you overlay that with the map of India of where DP World's ports are it's a perfect match really if you look at where the Brazilian variants Brazilian variants spread to North America mm-hmm it first hit North America in British Columbia around Vancouver, which is where DP World's port is. If you look at, um, if you if you look at uh, during the Bush years, Rumsfeld, who was a, was a major booster of the Emirates, mm-hmm. what they were trying to do in 2005 was to allow DP World, the Emirati shipping company, to take over major ports all over America, mm-hmm. and Congress stopped it. Mm. DP World is, if you do a thought experiment and say, okay, maybe Berko Shemitz is right. Maybe it is spread through the cold chain. How could that be spread? And who could allow it to be spread? Mm-hmm. One major uh, 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 a kind of, uh, I would say, a prime suspect would be DP World, the Emirati Shipping Company, which controls cold chain facilities and terminals and ports all over the world. And, and you've seen evidence that... Corroborates uh, the idea correlation uh, coalition that collates 
the the idea that DP World sh DP World uh, shipping vessels or whatever yes. are responsible for transporting contaminated COVID nineteen contaminated cold hold, hold chain on, products. Say, hold, okay, uh, that is um, no. Am I getting okay? You, I, 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 in some ways, if I could, if if I could say yes to what you just said, then I would have a Pulitzer Prize. No, I can't prove that DP World is spreading coronavirus on cold chain products. However, they are, I would say, if you believe cold chain is a real theory, mm -hmm. um, they're a prime suspect because they're, they're a very monopolized country, very close to these, this clique of the national security state. You know, keep in mind, who's, who's the guy who acts the pandemic department of, during Trump? John Bolton. Who does mm -hmm. John Bolton work for? The Emirates and Sheldon Adelson. Hmm. Right. So they're a prime suspect to me as a as a means, as a how. Okay. Uh, by the way, the owner of DP World, one of his best friends, guess, died uh, in a helicopter crash right before COVID. Uh, Kobe Bryant? That's right. The owner of DP World is Prince Sulayem something. His best friend was Kobe Bryant. <laughs> really? And Kobe Bryant died two months before. COVID-19. Anyway, someone was trying to get get to this guy by... I don't know. I just find it an interesting factoid. Okay. All right. The, interesting, the listeners interesting are like, ah, challenges. interesting. Okay. All right. Look, I can't prove that DP World is doing this. Mm -hmm. I do think there's a high correlation between their ports, if you look at their ports on the map, mm -hmm. and where COVID is spreading. Okay. I think it's also interesting that the countries that are aligned with the Emirates seem to have been spared COVID. Really? Such as? Greece. In Europe, Greece was so a so-called COVID miracle. Despite the fact that it's an extremely elderly population, people eat 25 to a table. It's not the most mass-compliant, uh, government-compliant people you could think of. In mm -hmm. fact, they don't even pay tax. You know, they, they, they don't comply to anything. Yeah. But for some reason, Greece did not have COVID. At the same time, the Emirates was building up Greece. Why? Because they were fighting its second major enemy, which is Turkey, backed by Qatar. Hmm. Remember Turkey? Uh, sorry, I don't know if they... Listeners know this, but Emirates and Qatar are in a major, major rivalry. Okay. I and mean, it sounds like you said it set them up as, as opposing sides. Opposing in a, in sides, opposing axes, opposing uh, gravities of power. But they're directly in conflict with each directly other. Directly in conflict. And they're neighbors. Mm -hmm. And Greece. So Qatar is backing Turkey. Okay. UAE took over Saudi. UAE took over Egypt. UAE took over Sudan. UAE has made a deal with Netanyahu and Israel. Mm. You know. Uh... One of the highest coronavirus rates was in Qatar. Huge pandemic happening in Turkey. And for some reason, Turkey's main enemy for years and you know, centuries, Greece, has been spared the coronavirus. That's an interesting outlier. Now, can I prove DP World's doing this? I don't have direct evidence. I think there's a lot, a lot of circumstantial evidence and correlation. But, but, the guy who is the head of intelligence for the Emirates, is the crown prince's brother. Same as Sheikh Tanun. Hmm. He doesn't own DP World, but DP World is understood by most Middle East watch. By the way, this is consensus, not speculation. DP World is understood as a apparatus, uh, an extension of state power of the Emirates. The crown prince's brother, mm -hmm. who's the head of intelligence, owns many different companies. One of them is called International Holdings Company, which is a covid which became extremely involved in COVID data management and had the highest stock growth of any company in the world over the last year. The other company he owns is the Abu Dhabi Development Company, which, which has involved a lot of different stuff. 
that owns the Saudi livestock company. Because, mm. of course, they got basically took over Saudi, as I mentioned before. Yeah. And that Saudi livestock company owns a Brazilian food company. And that Brazilian food company is the one that China found the samples of coronavirus on when it arrived at their ports. Wow. Again, if I had more and more evidence like this, I would have a Pulitzer Prize. I don't. But I do think there are... You're more seeing more and more yeah. indicators. It's a lot of circumstantial evidence. It is, but I think they're more. I think that as the as the as the natural, uh, the natural evolution of coronavirus, no longer is even supported by anyone, mm. China or America. Yeah, yeah. Uh, let's ask ourselves what makes the most sense. Hmm. You know, does lab is lab leak a totally viable theory? Yes, it is. Is cold chain also a viable theory? I think so. I think so. And, and what I'm saying is I am... Um, my personal opinion, which I think is informed by evidence, mm -hmm. circumstantial, yes, is that it is a combination of both. That Wuhan was chosen to be the start of the pandemic because it would implicate China. It would blame China for causing this but that it is really spread, like China and the WHO say, through cold chain logistics, and Ooh. that it is intentionally spread on by, these, that, by this actor, by this clique, more associated with the Emirates, but really, and it, really it's America. I mean, it's a, it's, a, it's a half of America. It's part of, yeah, half of the, the half of the American security state yeah, that, that is, was more uh, that with is Trump, with more with Emirates. Exactly. So... More hawkish, more, um, you know, these are the, the brought to you by the same people who brought you the Iraq War, the Afghanistan mm -hmm. War, 9-11. Okay. Trump, Bush, etc. So, all right. So is, am I making sense at all? Or yeah, no? no, you're making sense. But I have questions. Yes, please. And um, so one question would, okay, I have one question. I guess the obvious question is, okay, if... This, uh, if DP World, uh, you know, if 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 they're, doing, I'm saying I'm saying that is a sensible if and a prime suspect okay. of transmission okay. vector. Assuming that that's true, why? Why? What okay. is their motivation right. for doing this? Right. For spreading right. this pandemic? Right. It sounds horrible to me. Right. Uh, surely they must have a reason for doing this. That seems. Um, you know, like, uh, I don't understand what their motivations are. So I guess on my one question would be, what are the goals of Team A and Team B? Like, right. what's what's the their overall deal? Like, what are they like? What are they trying to accomplish? And why would Team B be deliberately spreading COVID nineteen to specific right. ports? Um, why? Right, okay. So I think we've gone over who, we've gone over how a little bit. Mm -hmm. And now you're asking why. Why? Yes. Right, I'm going to read you a quote from a former CIA director who I think is very much involved. Okay. His name is R. James Woolsey. Mm -hmm. Quote. This would be a great time to bring in the uh, Iceland music. Oh, yeah, yeah. We'll bring that up. The United States cannot afford to wait for the next energy crisis to marshal its intellectual and industrial resources. Our growing dependence on increasingly scarce Middle Eastern oil is a fool's game. 
There is no way for the rest of the world to win. Our losses may come suddenly through war, steadily through price increases, agonizingly through developing nation poverty, relentlessly through climate change, or through all of the above. So what is that? What does that say to you? What I'm saying is this. Let's leave COVID aside for a second. Why did we invade Iraq? Oil? Why did we invade? Yes. Everyone knows that. Mm-hmm. Even if you don't know anything. Yeah. Every, it's like clear. And by the way. In general, I think people who are less so-called informed, like read the Washington Post or mm-hmm. Wall Street Journal, whatever. I feel like their instinct is correct. Okay. Maybe their conclusions aren't always correct. Maybe they don't always have the correct, most up-to-date information. But their instincts are correct. Okay. Ask most normal people in the world. Their instinct is, this is fucking on purpose. And their instinct is correct. Ask most people, why did America invade Iraq? Well, it's got something to do with oil, obviously. Mm-hmm. It's not about Saddam weapons of mass destruction. There were no weapons of mass destruction. I was a child then, and I knew that. Yes. Why didn't we invade Afghanistan? Has anyone come up with a cogent rational in the mainstream media i mean uh-huh. re- reasonable explanation of why we've been in afghanistan for 20 fucking years well i mean ostensibly initially it was you know because of 9-11 because right we killed Taliban. bin laden 10 years ago we're still there i mean now we're leaving i mm-hmm. guess and i think eric prince wants to take over and privatize it mm. why are we in afghanistan why are we in iraq why did 9-11 happen why are we in the middle east why oil obviously yeah okay so what I'm saying is that COVID-19 is also a response to the same energy crisis that Woolsey's talking about. The world is running out. The world is running out. Running out of oil. Well, it's a little complicated. The world still has oil. Consider, okay, uh, we're about to talk about peak oil. Peak, peak oil. Peak oil. Okay, peak. look. Everyone made fun of peak oil for years. The concept. And then last year, during COVID-19, everyone went, huh, peak oil is a real thing. And it just happened. Well, newsflash. It would have happened no matter what. So what is peak oil? Peak oil, if you think of, uh, let's use your toothpaste tube as an analogy. Okay. Now, when you get to halfway of your toothpaste. Actually. I think it works best if you're. You're talking, Let, <laughs> talking about like the end of the toothpaste. Okay, the right? end of the toothpaste. Imagine that half of the toothpaste so, was the, okay, was well the end got, of it. You have a full tube of toothpaste, right. and it's easy to squeeze. Right, you easy got to squeeze. Ample toothpaste everywhere. Right, you nice and easy. Goes right on your toothbrush. Mm-hmm. It's a great brushing feeling. Yep. Easy, get, breezy, beautiful. Near the bottom. When you get near the bottom, it gets difficult, right? Yeah. Because. The stuff at the bottom is harder to squeeze. The mm-hmm. stuff at the bottom is harder to squeeze. The stuff at the bottom is harder, harder to, to squeeze. squeeze. And in addition, the uh, the world is not spread uniformly with regards to oil. As in, the easier stuff is in the Middle East. The mm-hmm. harder stuff is outside of the Middle East. Yeah. So the harder stuff is at the bottom. The easiest stuff is already gone. Mm-hmm. Which means that what Woolsey has been writing for many years is that the rest of the world peaked by 1999. Mm. As in the easiest stuff. Now, when the easiest stuff is gone, let's leave Middle East aside for a second. 
when the easiest stuff is gone, at some what peak oil means to answer your question is, at some point, you start spending more money, and more and exerting more energy mm-hmm. to get to extract the oil to extract it to the point where it's no longer profitable. Uh huh. Right. So imagine you're putting more energy to take that toothpaste out. It is no longer profitable to extract. Mm-hmm. And when this and and all the energy geopolitics people have been talking about this for years. It's called Hubbard's Peak or Peak Oil. And they say when this happens, this will cause fucking anarchy all over the world. And also it will concentrate all the conflicts in the world in the Middle East because that is where the easiest stuff still is there. Although even that is also getting Well, it, it seems to me as sort of, you know, as just sort of a casual observer of this is that, I mean, I, I, peak oil, you know, it's, it's a speculation as to when it'll happen. And it's been trumpeted that it's happened before that we oil did oil peak or yeah it peaked last year or it's about to but then like a new some new vast cache of oil is found and that puts pushes the clock back 10 years or whatever and so i feel like what are you know how reliable right is i mean but i I guess at any rate we know for sure that it is it is a finite resource yeah and at some point the easiest stuff is halfway gone. Okay. And I would call the other side in layman's terms. Just imagine a peak, right? Everything has a peak. Everything has a normal curve. Yeah. It's a finite resource. So at some point you get over the peak and now you're down. You're going down the slide down. That's where we live now. Mm. That We're in the slide down period. Okay. Now, when oil peaked the first time, in 2005, it did have this reaction, as you talked about. Prices went up, technology responded, and you had fracking. Fracking increased the amount of reserves, especially in America, also Venezuela and well, Canada. natural gas there, right? Also shale. Okay. Because fracking is an extraction method which can apply to both natural gas and oil. Okay. So, it ext- so now there are more reserves, so you've extended the peak a little bit. Okay. But in general, it's still finite. And most of the stuff is still in the Middle East. That's what Woolsey is arguing. Mm. Now, you make a good point. In general, I think many of the, say, people who make money off this, off oil extraction would say, what's the problem? I mean, uh, you know, demand goes up, supply goes down, we make a shit ton of money. Mm -hmm. But then you have another variable, which is climate change. The more oil that you, you know, it's not a long term. Well, yeah, it's I mean, not a long term. In some way, out of these fossil fuels, and they pollute, and they're right. They are fomenting they're, climate change. They're causing and, climate change. They're yeah. causing what he views as chaos. What he views as increasingly hard to control. You know, uh, giving these Middle Eastern countries more power than he wants. Because remember, when I say allied with the Emirates, let's let's remember. They're allied with the Emirates the same way the Mafia is allied with the unions. Okay. That doesn't mean they are pro-labor. It means they use the unions for their nefarious deeds. Mm -hmm. They don't want these Middle Eastern countries to become the more powerful actor. They want to stay in control. Right. So they have their own fight versus the other clique that's with Qatar. They have their kind of internal fight of keeping these oil-producing countries down. They have a fight against China. They have a fight against Iran. And they have this overarching uh, 
theory and you know it's it's called the office of net assessment it's a part of the pentagon which plans for basically apocalypse mm. what is the 21st century going to look like and it's saying yo everything's running out we got to pan for the apocalypse we got to get to the middle east that's what Woolsey is saying i mean i could repeat more quotes and maybe yeah you know i can repeat more quotes from him we okay. got to get to the middle east but but even if we get there here's what he's saying even if we get there and we and we're there our troops are there it doesn't solve the problem because the real problem is that oil, and this is what his uh, uh, his group is called. This is the group at the center of the newest mind map I sent you, mm-hmm. the U.S. Energy Council. Okay. What they're saying is it doesn't matter how many troops we get to Iraq and Afghanistan. And by the way, Afghanistan, I feel like people don't understand this. Caspian oil is also a major, besides the Middle East, Caspian is number two. That's okay. why Hitler wanted to get to Stalingrad and like that. Uh, okay. So, so Caspian is a big oil producing region. <laughs> okay. Um, that's another reason for Afghanistan. What Woolsey is saying is, look, yes, we got to get to the Middle East. We have to get to the Caspian. But the real problem, like, let's be honest, is oil itself. Oil as a strategic commodity is a threat to the national security of the United States. And this is not me positing this out of my head. This is literally, literally the, said it. This is literally the masthead of Woolsey's organization called the U.S. Energy Council, and if you go to the members of this organization, it is a who's who of what I call Team B, the supporters of Trump, supporters of the Emirates, the most highly connected national security guys going back to Iran-Contra, Reagan, up to Bush, War on Terror, and up to Trump. And they are saying we have to end oil as a strategic commodity. What's kind of funny about this is that leftists are also saying the same thing, too. Yeah, Green Because New it deal, is right? true. It is true. Mm-hmm. But... Consider this, that this team, even if they see the same problem, they have a different mindset of solutions. One, mm. because they know, because they have a different capacity of what they're capable of doing. And also because they have a kind of a... You remember that episode of The Simpsons where Mr. Burns becomes good for a second? Yeah. He, like, renounces his evilness. Yes. And he hangs out with Lisa, and Lisa's like... Yeah. Oh, like, is that the way like, they make Why don't we, like... They like, make the slurry right, uh, thing? Right, yeah. right, right. So, th- so, she, so she's like, look, the fish got caught in the... In the soda... In the, the, in the, in the six-pack thing, right? Yeah. And Mr. Burns goes, oh, that's so... Lisa, you've taught me... You've, you know, I've turned over a new leaf. And then what does Mr. Burns do? He makes a He makes a giant bat. factory with a... He's like, well, I got a great idea when you showed me that. If one six-pack could get one fish, then, uh, yeah, he made a giant net out of the six-packs right. and it just... So uh, his mindset as a, you know, you could say capitalist, industrialist, whatever. Mm-hmm. But I think in general, it's just his capacity. <laughs> yeah. He's like, yo, if oil is our problem, if the, what could we, how do we solve this? And the answer is, there is a way, there is a way to... Put a downward pressure on the real problem, which is demand. Okay, so demand. Th- okay, so so let's. Am I getting ahead of myself? Some, he, well, no, I just wanted to. Okay, so so let's just explicitly then. I know where you're going with this, but like, so this relates to the cold chain. How? Okay, so. Imagine you're these guys, these mm-hmm. Pentagon guys. They're planning for the 21st century, and they see apocalypse. They see apocalypse starting with what I call the slide down, Mm -hmm. which is the part of the graph, the normal curve after peak oil, Mm -hmm. when demand keeps going up 
and supplies going down. Now I know you can discover more reserves or whatever, but, but in, gen- but in people- general, this is a toothpaste tube. Right, there is and, a limited the demand, amount. The demand got- for oil is high, yes. and the supply is going down. It's going down, and they can control the supply, or right. roughly. Right, that is OPEC. Yes. Now, fifty years ago, almost exactly fifty years ago, mm-hmm. uh, America basically ran out of gold and ended the Bretton Woods Agreement. Okay. We'll get into that in another episode. But yes. basically, up until 19, from 1945 to 1971, the U.S. dollar was backed by gold. Mm-hmm. And the whole, I mean, these, these Bretton Woods planners in America basically invented an entire world financial system based around the dollar, but the dollar was backed by gold. Mm-hmm. And they used the Deutschmark and the yen as a kind of backup currency. But it's all basically backed by gold uh, within plus or minus one whatever. Okay, then what happened in 71? In 71, America ran out. America ran out for a few reasons. One, we're spending a shit ton of money bombing Vietnam. Two, LBJ, in addition to being the guy who started Vietnam, also was very pro-poor. He started many great entitlement programs, Medicare, Mm -hmm. Medicaid, and like that, civil rights. So it's a a lot of entitlement programs. In addition, uh, wages are going up. So... The rate of profit for industrial firms in America is going down because, in addition, the Deutschmark zone and the yen zone, the two countries that we defeated in World War II, mm-hmm. that, that the planners of Bretton Woods developed, intentionally developed through the Marshall Plan mm-hmm. and the occupation of, of Japan, which reindustrialized them and redeveloped them. They wanted to develop them as backup currencies, but they were so, you know, think of Germans and Japanese. They're fucking, they build cars pretty, they do everything good, right? Yeah. So they became more competitive economies, especially in automobile industry, okay. vis-a-vis America. And so America essentially became less competitive against Germany and Japan while we're spending all our money on entitlements, while we're spending all our money on bombs in Vietnam. And the big fucking reason, which is so big that it's almost easy to leave out, colonialism has ended. Mm. And colonialism, uh, for all of its uh, you know, psychological impacts, whatever, that we're still dealing with, it's a great way to get shit for free. Mm. So basically all Western firms are losing money, but especially American. Okay. Because now you're paying for shit for the first time. Mm. It's called the 50-50 deal. Mm. And all these other things that I talked about. So America is now out of gold. Mm. The Bretton Woods system was designed where America would have the gold and America would make the surplus. America no longer makes the surplus. So for all of us, there's a day. There's an exact day, August 15th, 1971. Mm-hmm. It's called the Nixon Gold Shock. Where France is like, shit, uh, we want to trade our dollars for gold. They send ships to America, like to New Jersey or something. And Nixon says, no, fuck off. You can't have your gold. And that's the day that everyone realized that they could no longer trade dollars for gold. Wow. So they had to invent a new system, a new financial system that would not be backed by gold in order to prop up the dollar. And so now the new one's backed by? Oil. Of course. Oil. Mm -hmm. And what they had to do was use OPEC, the OPEC oil crisis connected to the Arab-Israeli war, Yom Kippur War mm-hmm. of 1973, in order to inflate the price of oil, in order to take those dollars that would go to those oil-producing com- countries like Iran, Saudi Arabia, and then take those dollars and put them back into the American financial system and also defense companies. Okay. And this is what floated the American financial system for the last 50 years, was oil, mm. OPEC being a central role. Okay. And this, uh, to make this very simple, just consider that OPEC is a cartel that controls the, s- the, the supply side of oil. 
Okay. Right. Oil goes up, oil goes down. There is one cartel. It controls supply. OPEC is that the is cartel OPEC. that controls the supply yes. of oil. Okay. OPEC is the cartel that controls the supply of oil dominated by Saudi Arabia. All right. And, okay, so then what about the, the demand side? The demand side. Now, what Kiss, Kissinger, uh, and I was reading about this the other day, Kissinger considered we need a counterweight to OPEC. And he invented something called the International Energy Agency, which is all the countries that consume oil. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't mean they don't have oil themselves. Yeah. But in general, they're, they're consuming countries. Turkey's like, uh, sorry, countries like Turkey, most of Europe, India, like that. Yeah. So, so what Kissinger did in the 70s was he divided the world into oil producers and oil consumers. And I believe, it's not intentional, but I believe if you look at, generally speaking, I don't, I don't think this is conscious or intentional, but historically speaking, if you look at the countries that are more associated with Team A, and the countries are more associated with Team B, you will see that the oil-consuming countries are more on the Team A side. That's Democrats, Obama, Biden, like that. The countries that are more on the Team B side are the oil-producing countries like Saudi Arabia and Emirates and like that. Now, there's some gray area. Okay. Kissinger himself, by the way, his consulting firm is hired by Qatar. Mm. Okay, so what does this have to do with fucking anything? Yeah. As supply diminishes and as demand goes up, the ability to control oil. Now, let's say, I, I don't know to the ability that Team B or Team A or anyone has the ability to control the price of oil from OPEC. I don't know. Okay. It seems very complicated to me. However, it does seem to be, to make sense that as supply diminishes and as demand goes up, OPEC is no longer, or the energy agency is no longer sufficient means to control the price of oil for the slide down phase. Uh-huh. Does that make sense? Yeah. As so right all, now demand is the if, big if thing. If all they can control is the supply and that's supply not is enough. diminishing. Right. And let's say they can control supply. Uh and supply is diminishing. That gives them too much control, right? Because remember, they're not just like pro OPEC in general. They want to keep OPEC under their control. Right. Because they're not the same as OPEC. They're still Americans. Okay. Right? So how do you keep OPEC down? How can you keep this other clique down? How do you keep China and Iran in check? How do you do And it? Iran is part of OPEC too, remember. How do you keep them in check if you, in this world where supply is going down and demand is going up, what can you do? You can come up with a way to control demand. And what is a way to control demand? What is the opposite of OPEC? If OPEC is a organ that uh, restricts and expands supply to control mm-hmm. the price of oil which affects the financial system which affects geopolitics what would be the opposite of that well you have to find a way to make people need less oil the way to control demand the only way to control demand is a pandemic it's a pandemic pandemics shut down entire economies world economies national economies you name it I mean, you were saying, yeah, you told me this the other day, and I was thinking, you know, racking my brain, like, well, how else could you? How else could you do it? I don't know if there's another way. I mean, yeah, I mean, you think about other natural disasters, but those tend to be localized. Localized, regionalized, exactly. Yeah, but to to do it on a massive scale for entire countries to to reduce the demand of oil, I can't think of another way. There is no other way to, exactly like you said, to... 
And by the way, I'm not saying they always wanted to go down. I'm not saying they always wanted to go up. They what want they to be want able is control. control. Yeah. Control. They want to be able to flick the switch this way, flick the switch. Mm-hmm. Sometimes they want it to go up. Sometimes they want it to go down. But sure. they want to be the one who controls. Uh-huh. And that's why, and I told you at the beginning, I wasn't sure if, like, I couldn't figure out, like, how could you spread a virus on purpose? Then I started reading what China was saying, and the WHO was saying about cold chain, and then it hit me. This is the way they are controlling the pandemic as a new way to control the up and down of demand during this slide-down phase post-slash-during-peak post oil. Wow. Does this make sense? Well, it does. And, you know, it's it's just, you know, you kind of have to sit back and just kind of think about it for a second because this is, I mean, we're talking about, you know, this is so important to them to be able to control the right. demand side of oil that they're willing to uh, deliberately spread right. this pandemic to... Right you know, in a strategic way as if what you're saying is true right. via and the I, cold chain uh, to, you know, to, to dial, to put, put dial this it dial, up, dial, it down. dial it up, dial it down, you know, right. and, and I'm, I DJ. guess they can, there's a way to reduce, I guess you could dial it up or dial it down, but the way to dial it down is to spread this pandemic yes. and to shut the country down, shut the country, shut the world they go down, on lockdown. They're not consuming I mean, oil. Consider this oil. Look, oil has gone down. It's gone up. It has never gone negative mm-hmm. until March, 2020. Negative. Yeah, I remember. Negative. That. <laughs> Did really I clip? like paying you to take oil? Minus thirty dollars a barrel. That means they're paying you thirty dollars for every barrel that you hold for them, because they don't have enough places to store it. I mean, that's that's inconceivable. It is I don't the biggest it. energy shock, more so than nineteen seventy three, than nineteen seventy nine. COVID nineteen is the biggest oil shock that happens at the exact time that all these guys have predicted that there will be peak oil. The exact year, by the way, of the Aramco IPO, which is the first time Saudi Arabia sold its oil company because they don't have any, because it's not because it's all gone, but because but the, they're running out. They're running out, and the good stuff is gone. The good mm. stuff is gone. They're so down to, we're the, on the, to slow, the hard part of the we're tube. We're on the slow decline now. We're on the slide down. Yeah. And the slide down means you need a way to control demand, and Shot the pandemic slide. is a way to control demand. Wow. Okay. So what does that have to do with today's news? Now, what I, what I find very interesting is that this happened right after the almost war in the Middle East. I call it an almost war not because, of course, people in Gaza didn't suffer, mm-hmm. but because it was, uh, uh, I was very concerned. I think many uh, Middle East watchers were very concerned that this, this could expand to a, a wider regional or even world war uh, if it started to include uh, Hezbollah or Iran, etc. And it didn't. Now, the same people that are, I believe, spreading the virus are also behind the Iraq war, Afghanistan war, Trump, 9-11, etc. And so when this war was averted, and now the U.S. government and agencies are, and Fauci are saying, oh, it's Wuhan. Mm-hmm. What that tells me is there was a negotiation. As in, if you won't give us our war in the Middle East, you're at least going to get on our narrative that it was China who spread this virus mm-hmm. accidentally, of course, yeah. through their lab, through their irresponsible lab leak mm. at Wuhan Institute of Virology, which very well may have been where the experiments took place. Sure. But 
Um, but the real story here is my, my conjecture, mm-hmm. and I think it is, I think it matches up with what we've seen. Many of the mysteries. Why the first world get her more than the third world? Why does it match up with DP world? Why does it match up with exactly when the big energy crisis is? I do think it's intentional. I think it's control. I think they are, they have found a source of power in a way mm-hmm. because they are able to, like you said, dial it up, dial it down. And this is how they feel they must manage. Of course, they must, but who's the one with the power, right? Yeah. Well, this is the, how they feel they can, they must, they should, they ought to, they have every right, and they l- like to manage demands. And, I mean, you have a lot of power with this thing. You can control regional economies, world economies, national economies. You get biotech. You can get harvest d- uh, data, DNA. There's a lot of different things that come out of this. But they believe that you, once the decision was made that this was the only way to manage demand, and like you said, what else other way is there? They took, So they took it, they took the opportunity, and they ran with it. They saw... I believe so. Okay. And I believe they're doing it through the Emiratis because that's how they have been operating for the last 40 years. They do things through cutouts, through other countries, through other intelligence agencies, through other companies because they don't want, you know, it's possible to not, they want it, they want some other one, someone else to do the dirty work so it doesn't come back to them. All right. This is why you see all the countries opposed to the Emirates are getting hit more. All the countries who have cold chain capacity are getting hit first all the countries that are produ- uh, consuming oil are getting hit worst this i mean is what i think this yeah, is my conjecture i mean I, I, I hope i've discerned between the consensus and historical narrative in my yeah, personal opinion i mean i know th- i think you've done a good job of it and i think it's required you know it required a couple hours of exposition and, and you know explanation of the of the historical context and like the interrelations between these different entities, Team A, Team B, etc. Um, you know, it's a very, it's an unsettling claim. It's in a, and and you know, if you had just told me up front, the the global cabal of intelligence people that operate through the Emirates are deliberately spreading coronavirus to countries to control the demand of oil, like that's a that's a big claim. And I know it's supported. It's supported by a lot of circumstantial evidence. You don't have a smoking gun, but I don't have a smoking gun. But, but what I would say is, um, the other theories of say natural evolution, nobody seems to be coming up. Nobody has found the smoking gun between bats and humans, mm-hmm. right? So now, essentially, what you have is a Chinese theory of cold chain transmission mm-hmm. and an american theory of lab leak mm-hmm. so i know what i'm saying sounds well couldn't they also i mean those can coexist right well that i i am oh, saying kind of I, what you're, well, I guess what i'm it's a theory that theory, i like am the Lincoln proposing <laughs> humbly i hope is that there's a, a, a some gold in both of these waxes mm-hmm. and but i've also found if you look at the last 20 years, why did we invade Iraq? Why did we invade Afghanistan? Did, did they even, you know, millions of, like, why are we, why did we do that? It's all about oil. Of course. And to overestimate the ethical, in, in some ways, you know, I'm not saying these are totally 
they're motivated by evil. I think in their minds, they are doing the right thing for American primacy, for world stability or whatever. Of course, they're the ones in charge. But, you know, would you really put it past them after the Iraq war? Would you really put it past uh, the, them after man, Afghanistan? A man is capable of anything. Cute Chinatown. Chinatown. Yeah. Well, then maybe that's a good place to, uh, to end it for now. Let's listen to one more track from Iceland by, by Richard, Richard Pinus. Pinus. <laughs> Thanks and, for listening, uh, friends. Be safe and be good to each other. <laughs> <laughs>